BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Are you ready to start our podcast? Oh, you haven't done that voice for a while. It's because people don't like it. <laughs> Is that why? That's yeah. it. If you do something and people don't like it, are you not encouraged to just do it more? That's a very revealing no, statement. No. <laughs> it, oh, come on, it's not just me. There must, there must be... Yeah, yeah. Do you not have that? If somebody, says, if somebody says, don't do that, my immediate response is to want to do it. Yes. I mean, as, so when I was a kid... I right, think the word is recalcitrant, isn't it? Is it recalcitrant? I think, so. I think that's a polite word for what it is. So when I was a kid, specifically, if I was told not to do something, yes. I would, like, with every atom of my being, I would want to do it. And, and, and I, it, I never... I always wondered why it was that my parents just didn't figure out, just say the opposite of what you mean. Do you know what I mean? I know. I, I, is, uh, maybe this is the same thing. But if I'm at a concert, yeah, right, and everyone's clapping, then that's fine. But yeah. if the guy on stage says, come on, everybody, let's clap. Yeah, exactly. Uh, nope. Nope. Oh. Okay, everybody stand up. Okay, I'll sit down. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just, just because, well, why is that? Why is that? It's just... Tendency I, to be difficult. I saw Lee Mack years and years ago at the new Milton Art Centre. This was before he was, you know, Lee Mack's stellar star. Although he's still very good, but he was... A, and he did, a, he did a whole routine of being Robbie Williams on stage, singing one word of a song and then turning the microphone to the audience going, come on, you know this one? And oh, Lee Mack standing in the back going, annoying. I paid 50 quid, I thought perhaps you'd sing it. <laughs> I, to be honest, that is, that's very annoying when anybody does it, whatever calibre they are. I, I, I don't know. want I don't want to hear the audience singing it. I can hear that in the pub. Exactly. I'd, like, I'd like you to do it. But then again, that also taps into my general feeling that live albums, with very few exceptions, Waste of time. are to be avoided. That's Unless right. you were there and it's a nice souvenir, yeah. I would say the Ramones' It's Alive... Is, That's a double live album. Yeah, which is pushing it, really, because the first side <laughs> has got Blitzkrieg, Bot, Rockaway Beach, you know, as open as thinking, That's fine. That's I've, fine. I'm done. Sheena is a punk rocker. That's yeah, and it's over in seven minutes. Both sides. <laughs> so the, not... the, the only, the, okay, the only exception to that rule, I'm sure there are others, right? But the only exception to that rule is it is true that the live version of Freebird on One More From The Road, is it, it is called One More From The Road, isn't it, is better than the studio version. I'm not crazy about either version, but the live version is better. OK, well, I'm going to pitch into this very niche conversation. Uh, there was a George Harrison memorial concert which was recorded and, uh, and filmed, and it was I think it was called An Evening for George or something like that. Right. And there's a version of uh, when, when My Guitar Gently Weeps, oh, which yeah. Eric Clapton does live, which is the best version I've ever heard of that piece of music ever, better than anything right. that's been recorded. Okay. So just occasionally you'll get gems. Yeah. But, but, but it is definitely the case that those, those things are they're the exception that proves the rule. Because what's remarkable about them is that... I'll tell you also... Actually, I'm now, I'm now realising that everything I said is wrong. Live Stiff's Live has got better live versions on it than some of the than some of the, the, the studio versions of those songs. Which is a terrifying The thing. editorial team have just said in my head Moving on. Uh, no 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 well they probably mean that. But they said <laughs> kick out the jams. By MC five. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is that just pre- you know you know what memory that triggers instantly. No. Radio one, we're I'm playing so so the version by the KLF mm. Uh, has got the, it's fa- famously the rude bit is then kick out the jams melon yeah well, it's, it's put backwards um, 
I didn't. So, so I, but so, I put on the wrong version. <laughs> so it's got the the full version with kick out the jams, melon, melon farmers. farmers. Uh, and I'm, but I'm talking to my producer, who is uh, who is now the head of Apple. And <laughs> we chat, 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 and the phone rings, and it's the head of music. And he says, take it off. I said, what? He said, take it off. I said, it's the, you've got the wrong version. It's the one with the rude words. I said, no, I don't think it is. He said, take it off. There's another one coming in just a minute. I said, I don't. Oh, oh there was. Take yes, it there, off. yes, there was. So I'll take it off. It's always good to have a, a good Radio 1 anecdote at your disposal. That's genius. Yeah. So that's what I think of Kick Out the Jams. Kick Out the Jams, <clears throat> Melon Farmers. Anyway, that was an unusual discourse, wasn't it? <coughs> do do let us know of your suggestions of live albums that are better than... An email a from... Very, very short list. Johnny Singer. Law is signed, Laws of Cricket Advisor at Marylebone Cricket Club, which is a pretty impressive sign-off, don't you think? Laws as in L-A-W or L-O-R-E? L-A-W. Oh, okay. Laws of Cricket Advisor. Marylebone Cricket Club, Dear Fiddler and The Roof, I felt compelled to write into your show after a religious miracle that <laughs> took place this week. We get this all the time. I have long been a member of the church, and on hearing of its creation just a few weeks ago, and being not a particularly observant Jew, moved across to sit in the lapsed apse of the synagogue. <laughs> which is, so I'd forgotten the synagogue. Well done. Well the done synagogue was, was just synagogue. created a few weeks ago. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. I like the idea of a lapsed, lapsed apse. apse. On Wednesday, I and every other Jew around the world commemorated Yom Kippur, the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, marked with a 25-hour fast. My family attended synagogue for more of those hours than you would like to imagine. (laughs) Yom Kippur services make Tarantino films look brief and well edited. With myself and my parents in one congregation and my sister, brother-in-law and baby nephew in another. We then came together to break the fast, a lovely meal in which everyone is desperately hungry, eats too much and is uncomfortably full within 10 minutes. It's like Christmas. Anyway, while I was massaging my bulging stomach, my brother-in-law turned to me, a big Harry Potter fan, and said, you'll never guess who we saw in synagogue today, Draco Malfoy's dad. I gasped. Do you mean Jason Isaacs? I replied, yes, that was his name, Jason. So did you say hello to Jason Isaacs? I asked him. Well, of course. Why wouldn't I say hello? No, <laughs> no, no. Not hello. No. Did you say hello, hello to, to Jason, Jason Isaacs? Isaacs? It turns out that he had not said hello to Jason Isaacs, only just a regular hello, hello, welcoming him and his father to their synagogue and briefly discussing if he would like to do a reading later in the service. Obviously, I can only apologise on behalf of all our family and perhaps our people for this failure to greet Jason appropriately. Jason, if you're listening, which he will be. Yes. Hello, Jason. Hello to Jason Isaacs, and sorry for my yet-to-be-converted family. P.S. My friend Rosie, a devoted member of the church, and I are running the Amsterdam Marathon next weekend. If you could give Rosie a a wass-up and assure both of us that it will be all right, that would make our days. We'll both be listening to next week's show as we set off next Sunday. It will definitely be be all right, (coughs) because Amsterdam is renowned for its flatness. Yes, uh, although that you know there are other factors involved. The Berlin Marathon is the fastest, apparently. If uh, you have a very fast uh, entry time to actually get in, but for some reason Berlin is faster than anything. But it, well, it must be to do with the fact that it's paved and flat, right? Or downhill or something with so a wind. It's not possible for a marathon to be downhill. Okay. Um, <laughs> How many miles? Like 20, 25, whatever. Twenty six miles downhill. This next email... You have to start on a mountain. ...has a headline, Birdsong in Helsinki Toilet, which just is inevitably the most interesting thing about the email. But anyway, Andrew Thorpe, 
Uh, I'm happy to report your influence has spread to the Nordics. I travelled to Helsinki the other day on business and, having landed, availed myself of the men's lavatory at the airport. As I stood at the urinal, I couldn't help notice... <laughs> Sorry, how many other shows were broadcast this email? Well, this might get edited out. <laughs> okay, so right. we, we won't. A strange sound coming from above me. At first I thought it was a phone ringing, but no, the speaker system was playing birdsong. A soothing cacophony of twitterings permeated the room, presumably to become stressed-out travellers. I feel it's important to remember that sometimes birdsong is actually what it says on the tin, and given the polite and chilled-out nature of the Finns, maybe we should be harnessing its soothing properties here in the UK. So, it's true that we've kind of spoilt birdsong for so, a number of people. Can I tell you a birdsong story quickly? <coughs> is it entertaining and, and brief? It'll be brief. Um, I was sitting out in, in where our house is, right? We've got in Narnia. Like, in Narnia. Yeah. We've got like an annexy bit that, that used to be um, like a... An annex? No, it used to be like a shed, but now it's got... Now it's, you know, you can sit in it with a computer and everything. You know, you can work. So it's a shed with ideas above its It's a shed with station. ideas above its station. It's a very nice shed. It's a, no, it's an annex, Simon. It's okay. an annex. I said it was an annex. Yeah, okay, yeah. fine. And I was working and I suddenly heard in the in the little bit next to where I was working, a, clear as bell, um, a bird in the in the room. Not outside, because the, the, the trees outside, we've got birds on them, obviously, but in the room. And it was really startling. And I went looking for the bird and I couldn't find it. And I thought I must have been hallucinating. And I got back and I got on with work. An hour or so later, it happened again. I heard the bird literally as clear as day, like about a foot away from me. And I thought something's got in through the skylight, or you know, because that's how big. That's how those the ideas it's got above your station. It's got skylight in it. Wow, that is a, that's and a magnificent. And I went, went, I could not find it. I literally couldn't find it. And literally, I've, that's the second literally of the the week of the day. And uh, so finally, after the third one, about an hour later, the third one happened again. And I said to the good lady professor indoors, "We've got a bird stuck in that thing," and she went. That's the clock that you bought for your mother from the National Trust that cheaps on the hour and that she didn't like because she, the bird song made <laughs> Great. And you hadn't even... It's been there for years. I've, lit, I've never noticed it before. I said literally again, I've never noticed it before. It, and I, I was, I was looking... this clock? It's the size of a clock. Well, clocks can be any size. You know, like the size of a 45 single or something, you know, seven inches, maybe eight inches. It's just a clock and it's got birds. So when you look at it, it's got birds all the way around it. And when it gets to the top of the hour, it makes a very convincing, very convincing bird song. Yeah, but it is still a clock and it's been there for a while. I know it's been there for ages. And she said, have you never noticed that before? And I said, no. Do you think you might be losing it? Possible. Okay. Just that mention. Um, because someone might email that in, so I just thought that you there. are losing <clears throat> it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, you know, we, we, <laughs> we've had we've had emails coming in, people saying that from all around the world, Simon. Most and 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 often from management. <laughs> Mark in Ballam. Management came in. Management, are management. through there. Look, they, yeah. Look at them. You can tell. How are we doing? It's a lovely studio. Great, That's, great facilities. Who are all those people? No idea. But the acoustics are great, aren't Have they? Have we done something bad? And look, there's, 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 look at the facilities. There's a jug. Oh, of water. I know it's great, isn't it? Yeah, and it's like it's it's high resolution studio as well. Because listen, yeah. I can can do this. Hang on, here we go. What is the drink Mark is pouring now? It's Doomba. <laughs> he started it. I never like to broadcast without a without a little sharpener. <laughs> Absolutely, there is a drinks trolley. Where is the five live drinks trolley these days? 
You know, they, you know, they used to be. Oh, a, I know. Yeah, yeah. No, they used to be in in uh, what's it called? Peter News Allen, probably in Newsnight Review. They used to be a drinks trolley in the green room beforehand, so that you know, one was which I would have an absolute rule about: don't do that, and then the other one. But the, yeah, the encouragement was yes. You know, have a have a little sharpener before you go on and discuss the works of Ibsen. That'll work. I think we need to bring those days back. Mark in Ballam, good afternoon, Grand Wizards of the Order of Film Critics. I would like to draw your attention to the proliferation of footsteps in film. This is not something that we've discussed before. Have you noticed the, the number of footsteps I, in film? No, uh, uh, only... Hang on, hang on. Management are leaving. They're all filing out. <laughs> that was... Did whatever, we get, well, we, did we get 30... We got thirty. We got thirty. Out of, but it's and what it's out, out of. It's now, now out of now, <laughs> They're going into the green room where they'll be entertained with a selection of soggy sandwiches which have been rejected by by the world PM. of one. <laughs> where are we? <clears throat> oh yeah, the proliferation of footsteps in film. In the actual, I hate it when people just come and hover and they stare. You're thinking, who are you? Were you, you looking at them all the time? That we were I was doing trying this? not to, but they were. Were they there all the way through? I once had it. Yeah, well, for a lot of the time. It's, I a it's very good that you were unflapped because I would have been flapped. You had a prince. Yeah, there was a prince. I can't remember. It's prince of something or other. It came when I was doing. Oh, you, so you don't mean prince as in our oh, no, prince? You mean a radio, prince of something? Back at Radio One. Yeah, so you mean prince? Management as in, brought. Hang on, no, no, no. Before you, do you mean prince as in prince? No, a prince. Are you a prince? H R H prince. Fine, thank it you. wasn't Charles or Philip, and just came and stood behind me whilst I was doing a, a, a witty link. Oh, we've all had that. Drives you crazy. Just leave us alone. Um, anyway, <clears throat> Mark in Ballam. Oh, yeah, proliferation of footsteps in film. In the actual world, a person's feet hitting the ground do not tend to get noticed unless they are a drill sergeant or wearing <laughs> Blakey's. Blakey's? Didn't you wear Blakey's? No, they I don't know great. what that is. What is a Blakey's? They're metal uh, studs that you put in the bottom of your the heel normally to okay. protect to protect the heel. They just made the heels last longer. Why are they called Blakey's? Uh, I think that was the name of the company that made them. But not as in oh, I'll get you, Butler. No, what you, you Blakey's could do is you could put Blakey's front and back, put them in the heel and in the foot, and then you could tap dance. You could if you came across the right kind of. Uh, polished concrete yeah. or tiled floor, like at school in the corridors of Solihull yeah. School. You could slide. You could slide more, better. What's better than that? Skate? Slide and make sparks. No! And if you got to a particular speed, sparks <laughs> would fly out because you got metal in your shoes. But that, okay, but that's where that thing in um, Matchstalk Men and Matchstalk <coughs> Cats and Dogs, isn't it? Kids on the college, it was sparking clogs. Sparking clogs is, is doing that. Oh, it's okay. having metal on the underside of your thing and sparking the... Now the editorial team is saying segs in my head, but Blakey's did the same thing. Anyway, so that's... Segs? Yeah, he was the lead singer of Madness. <laughs> no, he was the lead singer of Posh Madness. Hello, I'm Segs. Blakey's made segs. Apparently. Sorry, that was a funnier but, joke than you gave it credit I'm for. I'm sorry, I'm just getting direction all the all time right. and I'm, I don't want any more of it. All right. So, yeah, so metal in your shoes. And if you can skid and make sparks, it was very impressive. Anyway, in film and in Teleland, says Mark. Sorry, this is a very long email. Okay. It's longer now that we've done all this. In film and Teleland recently, there are always steps haunting me. Flip-flops, bare feet, trainers, no footwear is spared, a ridiculously loud foot sound effect. 
Happy to be indulged with Lee Marvin marching down a corridor, yes, but is it really necessary all the time? I admit I do suffer from tinnitus. So could footstepsis be an advanced celluloid version of this unfortunate malady? I am loath to pass on this curse to you too, but I will anyway. But the next time you watch a modern movie on the telebox or the cinema... Please take note of the unnecessary footstep sound effects. It is now driving me crazy. So, so we're assuming that these have been folded in afterwards. Yeah. These aren't footsteps that happened that are actually because they're walking along. I suppose Mark's point is normally you're blissfully you don't hear anyone's footsteps, but in a movie or on the television, you have to hear them. It doesn't matter whether you're barefooted, flip flopped, or yes. But the question ladies. is: Is he talking about the footsteps that were, that were recorded as a live sound, or is he talking? He seems to be talking about footsteps that have been folded in Added afterwards. In, I think so. Footsteps, okay. as he's calling it. So. Let's, he says, your loyal and obedient tinfoil head servant. <laughs> so it might, this is kind of like small hill territory anyway, but yeah. it's the thing that is driving him more crazy than anything else. We will take examples. Uh, next time you go and see a movie, look out for footsteps um, where, where you can hear someone walking where you don't need to hear someone walking. Yeah. Thank you very much. I'm going to go and buy some Blakey's. It's, it's definitely true that in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there's, there's a lot of people walking. That's why I said when I meant when I said there's a lot of shoe leather in it. There is a lot of somebody comes in and walks from the one side of the screen to the other, and you go, you couldn't have just brought the shot in when they're at the other end. Good point. The other thing which I don't encourage you to do is we always we also used to just put drawing pins in uh, on the sole of the shoe, so that if the Blakeys didn't provide enough. Uh, spark factor, yeah. you had drawing pins in and you just skate down the corridor. And presumably they would then stick through into the soles of your feet. They absolutely would. And also you get a teacher going, Oi, Mayo, see me. <laughs> Litter duty. Detention. Litter duty. Litter duty. Lines. Yeah. Double Latin. Double Thanks Latin. Go and see the head of divinity who will talk to you again. <laughs> by pulling the little bits of hair by the side of your ears. Exactly. We've got some correspondence about divinity teachers Have we? later in the programme. Okay. Uh, just one more before we kick off. Uh, Nigel in Birkenhead. Do you remember your tale last week of the direct... I got married in Birkenhead. Did you? Mm-hmm. Well done. So I'll tell you. Um, do you remember the tale you told last week of the director ignored by an unaware photo seeker? Yes. Yes. The director was? It, was, it wasn't it was this an Exorcist story? Yeah, it was William Peter Blatty, not a director, he was okay, a writer. The writer yeah. yeah, he was the guy who wrote The Exorcist, and we were at the top of the steps going from 36th down to M Street in Georgetown. Which is where it was. The Exorcist steps, okay. yeah. Anyway, Nigel continues. Further to that tale, the French director Jean-Pierre Jeunet experienced a variation on the theme. Okay. He tells the tale that... While convincing Francophile Jodie Foster to make a guest appearance in his next production, a very long engagement, he took her to the same picturesque Montmartre cafe he had used so expertly in his previous hit, Amelie. Amelie. Sitting outside, the duo were approached by an Amelie fan who asked if they could get out the way to allow a more <laughs> unsolid photograph of the now famous establishment, <laughs> little realising that they were excluding Brilliant. the actual director Brilliant. of the movie and an incognito Hollywood star. Brilliant. I like that very much. Uh, anyway, so the show um, is about to start with... Yes, we've got some stuff from Divinity Teachers and me and Frankie Howard. Live action, which came up in last week's conversation. <laughs> I can't wait. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to the programme. He's Mark, and he's sort of uh, plugging various bits and pieces in. No, I'm just, I'm just moving some papers around. You've got your stuff together? I've got everything together. Uh, nice I've got it all going on. Poised for a couple of hours of film conversation... Uh, with some reviews, uh, Sienna Miller is our uh, top guest, talking about her new movie, which is American Woman. Originally called The Burning Woman. Is that right? Apparently, yeah. 
Um, that is a better title than the, I think the one they've got now. Yes, is the I like the title. Yes. Oh, so I know I like the burning one. Slightly misleading. Well, no. I'm, I, well, anyway, it's, just, it's neither here nor there. The film is now called American Woman. When yes. it was uh, uh, during its production, I think it was referred to as the Burning Woman. What an interesting fact! There we go. Sadly, I'm... I didn't know that when I did the recording with Sienna Miller. <laughs> anyway, we have lots of other things to do. She wouldn't have anything to say other to, about it other than yes, that's correct, and then moving on. How yeah. did? Um... Frankie Howard come up in the conversation because what happened was you did something like you went oh and I said you sound like Frankie Howard and you as if casually dropping this went I worked with Frankie Howard and then you started on the beginning of the next sentence mm. and I went what, 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 pardon you how do I not know that you worked with Frankie Howard and you then came up with some clearly cockamamie story about you and Frankie Howard had done comic relief it was together a comic relief. Okay. yes it, it's the year of the hail and pace the Stonk song. Not, not well, one of the classic. <laughs> not one of the classic comic relief songs. And and they asked me to do uh, a doubleheader with Frankie Howard. It was sort of like the events of the day. These are the things that people have been doing to raise money for comic relief. Yes. And then we found a photograph of me and Frankie um, <laughs> d- doing this thing. I'm so impressed. Anyway, we have now actually found some... Genuine audio recording. Fantastic. Um, and my memory of this, I mean, it's, there's about six minutes of it, but my memory of it is that it lasted like one minute. Yeah. And I said virtually nothing. And yeah. Frankie just, as soon as the, the audience start to laugh, he just starts making Frankie noises. Yes, because you said he sort of says, now then, or something, and yeah. then after which... And they start laughing. Okay. Anyway, here's, here's just here's a little clip of uh, Comic Relief from 1991. Sometimes I lose the will to live, you know. Never mind. <laughs> Carry on. Is no, it me? It's still you. Where are we there now? Ah, uh, yes. Look, there's a lot here. Now, um, where? There. Oh, yes. All right. Now, let us split. <laughs> I went all high then. Did you notice that? You didn't touch me, did you, by any chance? I'm keeping my distance. Oh, good. Now, the s- shut your faces. <laughs> Keep that baby quiet there, please. Now, um, let us praise the staff of Town and Country Building Society Huntington, who have been roller skating dressed as bees. I bet they got a real buzz out of that. Francis. I'll do the jokes, do you mind? Let me know. Thank you very much. A buzz. I oh, know I didn't bat it at all. No. Now, I'll tell you something never work with animals or disc jockeys. Thank you. <laughs> and after that, he says, he says, and you're both. <laughs> Well, you can see that okay, that's, 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 that's the kind of that's a career that high point. But I mean, obviously, you were the, the script did give you the stooge lines. Yeah, I mean that. You know, I bet they had a buzz. That had yeah. been. It's not the kind of thing I would normally chip in and say. Was it not? Even in your no, chippity chipper no, radio no, one no, days, chippity top hang dang doody top of the pops <laughs> state. No, it wasn't. Someone had actually put that one in. But I just. Thought, I mean, it's just terrific. It's just pure Frankie Howard being Frankie Howard. I think it's, it's when he goes. Oh! <laughs> I went, I went oh, all went high then. <laughs> Anyway, <clears throat> so I like that one very much. Well done to our very fine um, team for cobbling that together. Uh, Bill Spindlow's been on. Hello, Bill. This came. I out... don't know Bill. I was just no. But we had a conversation about RE teachers, it might, uh, and the particular form of torture, sadism. Which... Yeah, well, it kind of was uh, because my divinity teacher, as he called himself, yeah. used to have this particular hair-based torture 
explained now by <laughs> Bill Spindlow. Mark and Simon, at my school some 35 years ago, our divinity teacher, Mr Doherty, employed the same form of chastisement as Simon described on your show last week. Is this something that's... Is it talked about in the Bible? Is that how they've figured it out? Did it say, and lo, he did grasp his brother's side hairs and twist them? I am now wondering if grabbing the hair at the side of the head and attempting to lift the pupil off the floor is the stock punishment of the religious education teacher. There we go. I don't recall this being a punishment recommended in any of the religious texts, but despite its temporary debilitating effect, I'm sure many might have preferred this to the alternatives contained therein. <coughs> Excuse me, Mr. Mr. Doherty was a large, stocky man, and after one occasion, when I attempted to plea bargain my punishment <laughs> down to turning the other cheek, I'm fairly sure he managed to lift my feet completely <laughs> off the floor. Still serves me right for asserting that in that week's class quiz that the other name for the land of Canaan was in fact the land of milk and cookies. <laughs> anyway, shout out to the other members of the church in Manila in the Philippines. Very good. So, I don't know, so clear. I mean, I don't know whether divinity particularly had sadistic teachers or not but it's so weird that it was called divinity i had completely forgotten that until you said it but that was then it became re i'm sure this kind of thing is banned what divinity yeah and also <laughs> picking children li- up lifting children by up by their hair <laughs> on balance you know we were talking last week about um the possibility of having a theme park based around this show i thought the certainty of doing it i thought we'd we'd arrange that it was going to happen Witterworld. yes um, was that was the general idea, and we've got some, some already some ideas which we can obviously claim as our own. Go ahead. When it comes to construction, um, for, uh, Mark Walton says uh, you could have. How about a Christoph Waltzer? That's very good. Do you like that one, Christoph Waltzer? Yeah. Paul Brett. Instead of burgers and hot dogs, you could serve uh, Werners and Herzogs, <laughs> which is very good. Yeah. Fizzlebang Wonderpop on Twitter <laughs> really says Jurassic Par. It's a mini golf course where a T Rex eats you if you shoot a bogey. <laughs> ben Clues, a merry go rant. It's like a merry go round, only with big rideable flappy hands slamming down with ever increasing force whilst the entourage review plays at Eleventy Stupid. Um A England from uh, Roanoke, Virginia. Of course Witterworld should include Ride socialism. It moves at two, mi- <laughs> That's very good. two metres an hour uh, while a condescending Frenchman whispers at you in Navajo and the food choice is imperialist American pig dogs. <laughs> That's very good. Uh, Gorilla Montoon suggests pipe smoking, but for ladies only. Mm-hmm. Uh, deliverance log flume with banjos, <laughs> says Neil. And uh, Nell, beg your pardon. And Ken says a rock and roller coaster, a little too long, makes you queasy and ultimately rather disappointed. Very good. But I do think a merry-go-round... Yeah. Actually, has some has has it has, has some merit. Yeah, we could probably install some of that on the cruise. What do you think? Yeah, and Werner and Herzog is very good as well. Uh, Tom in Sutton, uh, dear Joker and Croker. Hope you're feeling better, Simon. Medium- you are. You are <clears throat> feeling better, Simon. Slightly, slightly, yeah. Medium-term listener, first-time emailer. On last week's show, you discussed both the brand-spanking new Witterworld theme park, from mm-hmm. which I'm sure you'll both profit immeasurably, and the new Joker film starring Joaquin Phoenix. This got me thinking about the postcard one might send to loved ones whilst visiting the world's next experimental exper- experiential phenomenon. Might I suggest postcards with the message, wish you were never really here, adorned on them? <laughs> not only would this express the honesty of not actually wanting to be joined on holiday by the aforementioned <laughs> loved ones, but also gives Lynn Ramsey's masterpiece a That's whole new very- 
good. That's very wanna, good. Do you want to explain that? The, the Lynn Ramsey film that Joaquin <coughs> Phoenix made before Joker is uh, You Were Never Really Here, in which he basically plays a character without which I think Joker could he couldn't have, have played the role that he does in Joker. Can I say, by the way, we've had more correspondence on Joker than any film for many years. Yeah, yeah. In fact, almost more film, more, more correspondence about Joker than everything else put together. Yeah. And the, 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 the YouTube version of the review was trending. Was it? Yes, for a whole... I like the word you say trending in, in, in a certain tone, meaning whatever that means. Whatever that means, yes. It was trending on YouTube. Uh, Johnny says, uh, Dear Thomas and the Svelte Controller, in last week's show, Simon said hello to the guy who'd been listening to the podcast on Simon's train trip the previous weekend. Well, I am that guy. Uh, as soon as I saw the learned quasi-doctor, how dare you, enter my carriage, I was overcome with an incurable bout of Britishness. Much as I wanted to shout hello to Jason Isaacs, it was all I could do to pick up my phone so it was clear on screen that I was listening to Totsimosh, Best Devs podcast, <laughs> in the vain hope it might catch Simon's eye. And little did I know, it, it did. did. I spent the rest of the train trip... Silently explaining to my girlfriend sitting next to me, not yet a convert, that we're in the presence of podcast royalty. Needless to say, when listening to the pod on the way home from work next week, I was stopped dead in my tracks. My girlfriend, too, was excited to hear Simon's recollection and has perhaps moved a step closer to being a regular member of the church. Thank you, Johnny. That's very good. I should have tapped you on the shoulder and said... Oi. Uh, All right. <laughs> said no. Um, <laughs> box office top ten. Yes. At 37, good posture. <laughs> is it really 37? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, small, it's a very small release. It I is. thought it was uh, rather charming. Um, I think I was more charmed by it than you were. Yes. Um, you had reservations about the celebrity cameos. Oh, I, no, yes. I just thought they were... I think if if in a movie you show entitled people... Are you, I mean, you said, you know, Downton Abbey and so on. But if, if the entitled people in the movie are behaving in a particularly entitled and unpleasant way, I just find it a little bit annoying. Yeah. Okay, I was less annoyed, which That's is true. funny because I'm usually less tolerant That's than you true. are. Um, I did think it had a certain charm. I like the fact that Emily Mortimer is playing this very brittle, very cold character because it's so against the grain of what she... Well, Ellie Chambers agrees with you. Uh, okay. Last Saturday, I braved the awful Mancunian weather to visit the wonderful home cinema for good posture. I spent the first half an hour sinking low in my chair to hide the fact that I was silently weeping at the screen. Right. Lillian's feelings of loss and a lack of direction were perfectly portrayed through her small actions. There was no over-dramatised crying or anger, just the f small actions that connected the audience to the character. Luckily for me, the film is also incredibly funny, and I managed to sort out my mess of a face enough to laugh regularly throughout the rest of the film, especially at the brilliant Simon Sol Ool. Yeah. You kept changing his name. He does. I haven't seen scene stealing like that since Paul Bettany and A Knight's Tale. <laughs> That's a good comparison. Which is which is a good. Yeah. Uh, which is I a good do reference. think he is really really funny in it. That's that scene. I think it was the clip that we played when she says, "You know, have you actually read any of my books?" No. <laughs> we have. Um, so into the box of his top ten, yes. and we have one of our lobby correspondents coming up. This is right. where you go see a movie. You walk out. You record yourself on your phone in the lobby. 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 That's why it's called Lobby Correspondent. Uh, and ready or not is at number 10 is Kim Zuckert in Los Angeles. Oh, my goodness gracious me. What a ride. It's gory. It's bloody. It's hilarious. It's got a great cast. It's wonderful to see Andy McDowell again. The lead kills it, literally. And I honestly, I couldn't recommend it any higher. Go see Ready or Not. You will thank me, and you'll thank Mark. 
There you go. Ready or not, at number 10. I just hope that everybody was watching on the live stream as Simon interpreted that through the medium of modern dance. Thank you. I thought it was rather impressive. <laughs> I intend to do that with all of them. Uh, if you go see a movie, just send us a little recording on an email. Thank that you. That was great. Thank you very much. And how brilliant to get one from America. Mm. Thank you, Kim. Uh, Dora. Did, sorry, did that actually come from America or did just Kim happen to be an American here? No, she's in Los Angeles. She's in Los she Angeles. Yeah, you said in Los Angeles. Thank the you very much. global reach. <clears throat> we could have a, a Witterland here and yeah. a Witterland in Los Angeles. Okay. So <clears> that's <throat> the kind of thing we want for Lobby Girls because it was pithy, it was to the point, and it was nice about me. Yeah, OK, fair enough. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll go with that. Good. And it was like nine seconds, which yeah, is no, that plenty. Was, absolute brevity is an underrated quality. Dora and the Lost City of Gold is nine. <sighs> I'm so sorry. I will get there. But, but but again, this week, not only is there everything that's out there, there's also two Netflix movies which have also got brief theatricals. So we're, we're already overburdened with news. I, I will go and see it. War is at number eight. Yes, now that wasn't, I didn't, it wasn't press screened, so that's a uh, Yashrad release which I haven't seen. Well, Phil Fort has. has. I noticed that War is in the top ten. War is an action movie that apes Mission Impossible, but substituting the great practical stunts of Tom Cruise with poor CGI. It even involves a sequence when the protagonist hangs off the side of a plane in flight. Um, though it's even more ridiculous. The constant use of humans as shields against barrages of bullets also stretch credulity to breaking point. The film is tonally all over the place, with a middle section that feels like a totally different film could easily be in 40 to 50 minutes shorter. Ah. Thank you, Phil. That's war. Not a glowing eight. recommendation no. in that case. It Chapter 2 is at number 7. Nothing like as good as It Chapter <coughs> 1. The Lion King's at six, still Nothing there. like as good as The Lion King. Ad Astra's at five. Uh, half of an interesting film with half of a different film glued onto it in order to make it more audience-friendly by taking the existential Heart of Darkness meets 2001 and throwing in lunar shootouts and space monkeys. An underreported section of this movie now reviewed by Kevin Kaur. In Ad Astra, a subtle directorial signpost okay. hinted that Brad Pitt's dad was open to the idea that aliens existed. They wrote the word yes <clears throat> excuse me, three times on the cover of a magazine article asking if aliens existed. Mm -hmm. Imagine taking a load of magazines you'll have read in hours on a long-haul space mission to the edge of the solar system. <laughs> it's a weight restriction. Maybe you got a post. But it's a fair point. <laughs> no, no, it's a, yes, it Can't is a take fair. A point. Magazine all <laughs> to the other side of space. What's the point of that? Because it takes several years to get there, and by the time you get there, it will have turned into one of those things that you. Do they still have magazines in dentists' waiting rooms? I believe so. Which have we were always, you know, from. It's always punch. <laughs> That's right. Does punch even exist anymore? No. no, fine. So it was an edition that was from the right. mid seventies. Um, Hustlers, which is a film, not a magazine you'll find in your dentist. Yeah, I think it. <laughs> I think uh, that it's actually a very interesting topic. I think it's a very interesting film. I think it's got a very good central performance by Jennifer Lopez, who was immediately talked about uh, in uh, impossible Oscar consideration. Funnily enough, I was speaking to somebody just this morning about you know how the Oscar field looks like shaking down, and I had said you know I think maybe maybe that ship has sailed, but apparently not. No, apparently there is still some uh, some steam in it. Uh, I think it's funny and it's uh, sharper than Wolf of Wall Street. And it's based on a true story, but it makes the true story wild enough that it's like that kind of stranger than fiction stuff. I, I liked it. I thought it was pretty good. Graham in Manchester, age 28 and five-sevenths. Uh, 
after a short-term list of first-time email, after the good lady Dr. Erin Dawes introduced me to your witterings a year ago, I have an important code-based question for our most recent cinema visit. We ventured to our local world of cine to watch Downton Abbey, which is why I'm talking about it now, yeah. which is at number three. Okay. Yeah. Four hours after I wanted... Uh, four hours after I returned from watching Joker, which is an interesting... Uh, yes, that's... A, <laughs> is that called a palate cleanser? And she insisted that her slippers joined us to enhance her viewing experience. Of Downton? Downton, yes. Downton was a veritable hug of a film, but I'm not sure the King's Page of the Backstairs would allow slippers in church. <laughs> I'm sure she would have taken her latest wool-based crafting project for added cosiness too, if I'd allowed. May the congregation please advise on soft footwear code compliance. I don't, I don't have a problem. If someone wants to take their slippers, I don't have a problem no, with No, my, my, my only uh, proviso would be this. They must be kept on. With the slippers? Yes. Well, you have to take off your shoes and put no, slippers on. No, 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 that's fine. You could... Well, OK, but there's the problem, right? Because then you've got the pair of shoes odorific odorifically enhancing... Oh, that's true. ..the, the My, thing. Unless, the okay. out, apart Here, from the natchez, which... Here's, here's how you do it. You bring a sealable plastic bag, you know, yes. bag for life. You put the shoes off off your feet into the plastic bag, which you Russell, then seal... Russell. You no, know, but you do this before the film starts. Oh, okay, do this during, or in the lobby, maybe. Do this during the announcement when that voice goes, "This is cinema, dark, isn't it?" That one, and um, and then you keep them on. Then you keep your keep your slippers on. The problem with me is that because I've never had a pair of slippers, I imagine that you slip them on and you slip them off, <coughs> and then you'd end up with just socks, which is not acceptable. Um, Judy is at number two, which I really liked. I mean, you, you did a terrific interview with uh, Renee Zellweger. I think that the weird thing about it is that I was never completely engrossed in her performance. And obviously, because the film is based on a stage show, it's, or it's inspired by a stage show, it still has the roots of that stage show in it. Um, but I thought, actually, the more I thought about it, the more I thought the performance element of her performance actually did make sense in the same way as I said this before with uh, Natalie Portman in Jackie. And also, I think that, if you look, for example, at the, the Andy Nyman character, the fan who sees Judy through the fan's eyes, you know, I've read a couple of things saying, well, those characters are put there specifically to, to flag up, you know, and rightly so, her importance within the LGBT community. But I, I also think, yes, that, does, that is true, but I think it's, it's more personal than that. I think it's also through those eyes that we see the magic of Judy that you perhaps wouldn't see otherwise in the performance. Uh, <clears throat> this from Gillian Arnell. Hello. Last Wednesday, we found ourselves far, far away from home, normally Oxford and Torquay, lying down in the opulent regal cinema of Times Square in New York to watch Judy. The cinema seats there convert into black leather beds, complete with tables what? which slide over these beds to enable you to eat your three-course dinner with wine. This is assuming you have like in a hospital bed. fallen asleep during the hundreds of trailers which are shown prior to the main feature. There was, however, no sound of eating or slurping from any of the audience, probably because they're already asleep in the land of nod. <laughs> however, we kept awake and watched... Rene give a five-star performance, complete with stunning vocals. Michael Gabbin and Jesse Buckley, although excellent actors in their own right, were required to do very little but facilitate Rene's 
tour de force. However, the crescendo of emotion of the finale created by Stan and Dan yeah. had us both in floods of tears. A wonderful evening, and to the Regal's credit, the lights did not come up until the last credit roll. Very good. Stan and Dan are the stars of that film. Um, Errol Partridge just returned from a screening of Judy with my 80-year-old dad. Last week, we unfortunately lost our mother to dementia, and I thought it would be a good treat for my father to take a trip to the local cinema. I was amazed to discover that the last time Dad had visited the cinema was 42 years ago when he'd taken us both to see Star Wars. Wow. To say that my father was totally blown away by the experience would be an understatement. He'd been a fan of Judy Garland since his youth and my own attention was divided between watching the film and watching Dad as René Zellweger's portrayal took him back. Whilst, like Mark, I never completely lost sight of the fact that it was Zellweger, the performance was in turn amusing, touching and powerful. The depictions of Rosalind by Jesse Buckley, Mickey by Finn Wittrock and the fictional Dan by Andy Nyman were all strong and perfectly pitched. A few days later, based on his thorough enjoyment of Judy, I thought he might also enjoy Stan and Ollie, oh, a yeah, film with yeah. many parallels to Judy, and I was yes, again absolutely. split between watching the movie and his reaction to the unfolding story. I'm now looking forward to finding many more films that we can experience together. I mean, it is, it is strange that there is that comparison, you know, Hollywood stars in that sort of twilight British theatre environment... Um, for me, Stan and Ollie is, is the superior film, but I do like Judy. Uh, on the subject of Joker, we'll, we'll do as many of these as we can. Yeah. We'll put some later in the programme. Yeah. Uh, we've got a, a lobby correspondent on this. I'll just, I'll so you do... said we've never had this much correspondence well, about Well, we probably film. have, but I can't remember the last time that we had... Last Jedi? Possibly. Okay. Anyway, Joker is, is, is a new entry at number one, apparently yeah. more than Last Jedi. Yeah. Dr. Jamie Kirkland, uh, who's a consultant clinical psychologist, just finished watching Joker for the second time this weekend. Blew me away. I'm a clinical psychologist working with mentally disordered offenders. On a regular basis, I hear about unspeakable acts and find out about unspeakable backstories. But in order for me to do the job I do, I need to make an emphatic, sorry, an empathetic connection with the person mm -hmm. I'm working with. If I cannot find humanity in the person, I risk falling into the trap of looking at the criminal act alone and coping with hearing that story by dismissing the person as different from me, not me, a clown. Mm -hmm. For me, the fascinating part of my job is finding Arthur when presented with Joker. And that was the beauty of this film. Many people's stories have pain and trauma and tragedy, but not all turn out the way Arthur does. Working in this area, it's rarely a linear progression of events. Yes, the ingredients are there, previous abuse, turning the person into an abuser, but time and again I have found this tipping point almost as a chance moment, an accident or a one-in-a-million coincidence. That's what I think is uncomfortable for audiences. It's easier to understand people than do, that do unspeakable acts if we demonise them and say that such behaviour is reserved for a group of people, quote, not like us. So that was why I was moved to tears by the bathroom dance scene. Like Mark, I need to understand dance better. Something had profoundly shifted for Arthur, and his tortured body was able to convey better than words all the repeated rejections of his attempts to connect with humanity. But even then, there were opportunities for this descent to be averted. That is why the film had something valid to say. The tragedy for me is that if we don't try to understand a person's origin... We were on the risk of turning away from them too early. Keep up the good work. Um, let me just do this one. Um, Joker has, is an anonymous email. Joker has stayed with me for days after seeing it last weekend. I understand the criticism of its treatment of mental health. 
and links to violence, but my overwhelming feeling was one of hopelessness for a character struggling to cope with societal norms and sadness, society's treatment of him, even by those who mean well but do not have the resources to help, let alone those who actually want to torment him. The dance in the bathroom after the incident on the subway had me in tears. Rather than a celebratory reaction by Arthur, I saw this was more balletic and controlled as he tries to make sense and cope with the noise and conflict in his head of what has happened and how he thinks he should be feeling. I have some experience of mental illness, as I'm sure we all do now and again. I am torn between wanting to see this film again and never wanting to watch it again. One, and one more just before Mark. is have got a lobby correspondent sure. coming here. Um... This is where you uh, just send us a review, courtesy of your email. Uh, Katie Reeve has sent us this. A little bit lost for words. Brutal, violent, unsettling, outstanding. Performance from Joaquin Phoenix is absolutely off the scale. Slow burner at the beginning. Climaxes, breathtaking. Really, really outstanding piece of filmmaking. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Don't see it if you don't like violence. You know, what's really interesting about that is... Send in the clowns, Frank Sinatra, in the yeah. background. Oh, yeah. No, what I was going to say is, what's interesting is, it's if you see something written down, it's one thing. It's nice to hear somebody, you know, when almost lost for words. I mean, speaking very eloquently, but you could hear, you know, when people come out of something which has been quite a profound experience, you can hear it in their voice, which I think we did in that lobby correspondence. So thank you very much for that. Um, all these responses are great because the, because the film is very... It has, produces many conflicting uh, responses. The thing I, I don't really understand is there's some people who really hate it and think it's really shallow and poisonous. And as I said before, it is, it's definitely a film uh, with a very, very bleak worldview, but it's a, it's a film about the creation of Joker. What did you expect? Um, my, I, I, I think it's, it's also a film which isn't particularly subtle, is quite clear in, in its, in its sort of thrusts. The bathroom dance thing is is fascinating, and what's fascinating about it is how how profoundly it's affecting people. And I was just speaking earlier on to a friend of mine about this, and about if you look in the script, there's nothing in the script about you know he goes in, he throws up, and that was all kind of worked through uh, actually on the set, uh, which I think is is very interesting. How sometimes an idea can only be expressed through motion, and I did mean it when I said that thing about I am sure that if I understood dance more. I would start to consider it the highest art form because that I, I constantly talk about the physical expression of a character and Joaquin Phoenix's performance is fantastically physical. Um, and the only other thing I'd say is this, that the, the, the discussion of the way that the film has dealt with mental illness has, has polarised and divided people. But from just from those emails that you read out there, it is clear that th there is a, a section, a large, significant section of the audience who either have personal or clinical or maybe both experiences of mental illness who think that the way in which the film is dealing with it is, is m more uh, sensitive and insightful than the film's harshest critics have given it credit for. Yes. And just on that subject, just to balance it up, and news and support coming up in just a moment. Dr Olaf Ringelband says, I am a psychologist and have worked in psychiatric hospitals, and I am concerned about how Arthur Fleck's mental illness is being depicted. Statistically, only very few people with mental illness engage in acts of violence. It's much more likely that they are harming themselves or they are even becoming victims of violence. 
That applies even more to the kind of disease the Joker is suffering from, which is very unlikely to be associated with violent behaviour. Thus, I'm afraid this movie might contribute to stigmatisation of people with mental illness, something which is unfortunately quite common. So, and, and there we are. So, so but the, the most fascinating thing is the level of correspondence, the level of debate that the film is provoking, and also just, just how engaged people, even the people that don't like it, they're very they're very engaged with why they don't like it, and I do think that's a that's an inter- that's an interesting thing because I can hear it from both sides. As I said, every time I hear Todd Phillips speak, I think, oh, but it's that thing: trust the tale, not the teller. Americ in Nottingham on an email. Uh, Today I'm residing within the still-under-construction procrastinator's pews, <laughs> but when I'm at work, I'm in the psychiatrist's psych- psychiatrist no, no psychiatrist's saltaria. Was it P-S-A-L-T-E-R-I-A. Is that actually a place? Is that a thing? I don't know. As in a salter. Anyway, a psychiatrist's salteria of the church. Anyway. I have been struck by the number of listener con- contributions in recent weeks relating to mental health issues, which we're just touching on. This is a great thing, as mental illness is something which is unfortunately not spoken about enough. Many of us suffer in silence or know someone who is affected. These issues are frequently portrayed in film. Whenever I watch a film i hope for accurate portrayals of depression schizophrenia schizophrenia or addiction the good movies can provide insult insight or let sufferers know that they're not alone uh, there are also those films which unfortunately reinforce negative psycho stereotypes which could make a barrier to people coming forward those of us here in the uk may have noticed it was mental health awareness day yesterday so i'd like to take the opportunity to highlight that if you're struggling talk to your doctor and they can point you in the right direction to get help Marek and Nottingham. Thank you. Thank you, Marek. Uh, if you want to get in touch with the show, sorry, I banged papers unprofessionally against the microphone. Uh, Mayo at BBC. Years at Radio UK. 1. He still doesn't know how to shuffle his papers without banging the microphone. Text 85058. You are the ultimate paper shuffler. Right? <laughs> no, but, so we'd be lost without well, I'm a contributor. It's 20 minutes to 4 o'clock. Uh, we're going to talk to Sienna Miller about a new movie, which is called American Woman. Uh, you'll hear from her in a second. In this clip, you're going to hear Sienna Miller as Deb Callahan, Amy Madigan as her mother Peggy, and E. Roger Mitchell and Bates Wilder <clears throat> as detectives Morris and O'Brien. What about Bridget's father? He's not around. How long has that been the case? Since he found out I was pregnant 17 years ago, he never wanted anything to do with her. So, Deb, would you sit down, please? <clears throat> Where is he? Where is he living now? South Carolina, Florida. Look, you're wasting your time with him, okay? Tyler Henrick, this is who you need to be looking at. They got into an argument last night. He admitted that. He never wanted her to have Jesse in the first place. And he's been violent with her before. What what, what, what do you mean he's been violent? I mean, he's hit her more than once. And Bridget and I were like telling me all the he did. So if it was more than once, you can bet it was a lot more than that. Has an incident report ever been filed? I told her to file one, but she wasn't going to do that to the father of her kid. What I'm saying is all the boxes are checked off here. And that's a clip from American Woman. I'm delighted to say I've been joined by its star, Sienna Miller. Hello, Sienna. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. Yes. Good afternoon. How do we find you? How do you find me? Yes. Are you, I imagine that you're oh. quite buzzed and quite excited about I, this. I am. I'm very excited. I'm, I think it's a very exciting thing when independent films get released. It's not an easy journey always. And I'm very proud of this one. So I'm thrilled. How did you get involved? Out. I read the script, fell in love with this woman. 
And then had a meeting with Jake Scott, who is the director. And I was very flustered from a night shoot I've been doing the night before and walked into the restaurant to meet him, banged into someone's table on the way in. And he said he'd cast me by the time I sat down because it was just the right. See, route. I never believe those stories. You know, they just that sounds like a it's, scene from a movie. I know, I know, but it's actually true. It, it was not deliberate, although he still thinks that a part of me did it on purpose. I did not. So it was almost like an audition without it being an audition. Not that I was aware of, but now I know that it might have been. Yes. And the director is Jake Scott, who is, I'm just going to say it the once, is Ridley Scott's son, which is only relevant because when you come from that kind of heritage, it's going to rub off somewhere. And Ridley Scott's a producer on this movie, so it's all part of this package. But when you say it's an independent movie, what does that actually mean? Does that mean it's low budget? It means there's just not enough money, yes, yes. and that it, it doesn't necessarily mean it will be released. I mean, in order oh, wow. to get a distribution deal, somebody has to buy the film to release it. So it's made independently of a studio. Okay, and it's made fast. And it's made faster and it's harder work and people are there because they love being there, not because they're being paid to be there. And what was it about the role of Deb, who is without doubt, I mean, you are in every scene. Yeah. Uh, it's your picture, it's Deb's picture. What was it about the portrayal of Deb that made you think you wanted to be a part of it? She just seemed like a very fully realised character in a way that I hadn't necessarily read before, certainly not in films. She begins as one woman and really ends as another woman. By the end of the film, she's gone on this odyssey and has emerged as a fully realised human being. And I think to have that space and time to... Uh, to change people's perception of the character you're playing, to be given the space as a woman in a film to do that is rare. I, I found her funny. I found her brave, stoic and clumsy and human. The bare bones of the story are misleading, but tell them anyway. So what, what happens to Deb? What is the, certainly at the start of the movie, right. what is it that's happening to her? So she is a 32-year-old mother of a 16-year-old daughter who has a two-year-old son. So, so you're a grandma for the I'm, first time. I'm a movie. grandmother, yes. I'm a granny. And her 16-year-old goes missing and she is left to raise a two-year-old son. And I think at the beginning of the film, she's 32, but she's really reliving the youth that was taken from her because she was such a young parent. So she's frivolous and she's messy and irresponsible. And she's catapulted back into motherhood. Um and her daughter is missing. But it's really not a missing person story. It's sort of about what is left in the aftermath of a tragedy like that. How do you carry on? And people do. How do you cope? How does it change you? How does the world around you change? It's a real character study of a woman on a journey mm. that is at times unspeakably tragic. But she gets back up and there's humour in it. And it's, I think it's something that you're left feeling sort of Hopefully, it's inspiring by the end. You said character study and you also said Odyssey, mm. which are more helpful in terms of explaining the kind of movie that it is. Because as soon as you talk about a missing child, a lot of people, indeed I did, when I sort of read the kind of bare bones of it, thinking, oh, it's that kind of film. Mm -hmm. And it really isn't that kind of film. So it's quite difficult to explain what it is. But a study of this woman, Deb, and also her family. It's worth mentioning because the family that you were a part of is one of the most believable families that I think I've ever seen, I've seen in recent years anyway. Yeah. Just explain a little bit about who they are and how they fit because they're just like over the road, these guys. Yeah, so there's a mother and two daughters, me and Christina Hendricks plays my sister, Kath. Kath and her husband, Terry, and two kids live across the road from Deb and her daughter and grandson. 
And Amy Madigan plays our mother who, so it, I think the dynamic, because the father died early on, the dynamic was really these three women. And it's fraught with love and fury and tension. But there is a deep sense of of real love in spite of how people behave, which is often Deb behaving like a black sheep. Yeah. It felt really real to me too. I grew up in a house with a mother and a sister. That was also my dynamic. And Deb can be really unpleasant with her mother and her mother has to stomach a lot of it. But you're never that far away from the feeling of love and how close, you know, love and hate and resentment can be. They can all coexist. Kath is much more responsible, much more together and sometimes despondent about her sister's behavior. But there again is, especially between those two women, a really deep love. And that for me is the beating heart of the film, is the sisterly bond. And Christina Hendricks is incredible in this film. She is very good. There's a lot of work for you. I mean, is there a movie that you've done where you've been in every scene? Before? No, never. I've never been in every scene. And I've never really been the sole lead of a film. In fact, I haven't ever been the sole lead. I've always had a male co-star to lean on. And why do you think that is? I think people were making less films about women than they are now. I think people have sort of woken up in that town and realised that women represent over half the population and therefore should be represented in cinema in the same way that men have been. And I think there is more of an appetite for these kinds of stories. I mean, I want to look at a woman's life. I do. And I want to see that represented. I want to perform it, but also watch it. So hopefully this will be the start of... I don't have to be in every frame of every film again in the future, but I I loved being sort of somewhat in charge of a narrative and having the time and space to really develop a character in a complete way. And did it so you so you think that there is a greater in, interest now in women's stories there has been a shift in how those stories are told? I think there's always been the interest. I just think it's been completely undernourished by Hollywood. And I think because of what's going on in the world and the movements taking place in every industry, but certainly Hollywood is very aware of itself because it's had a huge spotlight shone on it. Um, I think people are much more focused on hiring female directors, female writers, female-centric stories. There is more diversity in cinema. All of these things, it was it was a very patriarchal kind of system. What's interesting, I think I'm right in saying, so you've, we've already mentioned Jake Scott's the director. Yeah. He's a man who wrote the, yeah. wrote the story. So, I mean, it feels like a very female-centric picture written and directed by guys. So you can't make yes. hard and fast rules. I guess you can't make hard and fast rules given that you're the only English person in this film. I Would think, that right? I, but Jake's an English man. Yes. Yeah, I'm not saying that everything has to be completely produced and directed by women I think the best people for the job is always the right decision but I do like to see these female centred stories being made Are there in America they raised eyebrows because you're playing you are an American working class woman in the middle of an American working class family like, as I said you, I think it's one of the best families that I've seen portrayed uh, in a movie for you know for a long time and that's clearly not you you know no. that's that's not your background but you were clearly that bumping into Jake in the in the restaurant did it. Was that odd? <laughs> was that what being an English person? Was saying, it just? It, it's it, or should I be the, able to? Hence the title. I mean, you've got you live in America. I actually you have were an born American in America. passport. Yeah, yeah. So, so I could argue so that one. So it is part of it. But you, I'm clearly English. I know. I have no desire to play myself or a version of myself in films. I would like the opportunity to play a vast range of different characters from different places. I think that's what's interesting to me about this job. But just in reference to it being the first time in, I'm not sure how long I've been working, maybe 15, 16 years, the first time that I've really carried a film is pretty extraordinary. And you've said 
before you still think about this character that you played, this Deb? That must be an odd feeling for you. It is, but these people that you sort of absorb a little bit of, of each character that you play somehow. You embody it so completely, or at least I do, and certainly did with this, that it's not something that you particularly want to say goodbye to. I like to just imagine them, and I'm, I suppose when I'm older I'll just be an amalgam of every sort of, I'll be some mildly schizophrenic so you, old lady. did you take her home? And it was one of the characters that stayed with you when you went home after shooting. I did, and certainly while we were shooting. I mean, I'm not somebody that will stay in character completely the whole time but I like to hold on to little bits of it and just with her I think I felt such love and empathy for that woman and that experience and that woman really is an American woman and I think there are a lot of women in America that are just unseen and struggling and coping it probably relates to an empathy for a whole breadth of society that I don't really know and want to given that you spend an awful lot of the film worrying and fretting about what's happened to your disappeared daughter. I know you met with parents of disappeared children. That must have been one of the tougher bits of research you've had to do. Yeah, that whole element of the film is something that is a nightmare for any parent or any human being, I think, can empathise with what that would be like. And obviously to tell a story about losing a child is it would be really irresponsible to not spend a lot of time talking to people and hearing about that experience without ever being able to fully understand what it is. But one of the people I met with told me his story and I said, I can't imagine what that was, what that would be like. I cannot bear the thought. And he said, you can imagine what it is and you have. And that's exactly what it's like. And it's that feeling of, the, you know, your heart sinks when you read these stories or see those news conferences. And sitting in that space in a strange way, acting is such a bizarre job that you want to look at your worst nightmare and you want to sit in it. It's very torturous, but there's catharsis in it somehow, and I can't articulate why. Um, uh, having carried this film and put in what I think a lot of people are saying is one of your finest performances ever, maybe uh, your finest, will you expect more from a script? I mean, obviously you read this script, we thought this is the one for me. You're about to be in 21 Bridges with Chadwick Boseman, but this will change what people expect from you, won't it? I hope so. Although we've, I've said that before and it, you know, it depends. I think that Hollywood can be unimaginative in casting, although I just did this TV show, The Loudest Voice, where I really don't resemble myself at all. And I think the combination of that... When you married to Russell Crowe. To Russell Crowe, who is Roger Ailes, um, the charming founder of Fox News. Yeah. Um, and... I, I I hope that if you line up the three characters that I have that in the projects that are released this year, you you could say that I, I I'm capable of doing very very different things. I would hope that this would lead to equally rich and complicated characters. But let's see. And maybe if you get involved in production, mm -hmm. then maybe you can create these, make sure that these characters are coming your way anyway. You know, I want to produce and I never have the impulse to produce things for me. I always think about casting other people. I don't have, it's funny. I, that part of it doesn't, I should probably do that. <laughs> Start creating my own content. Yes. So you're interested in getting involved in production, but not for yourself? I don't necessarily think about it in terms of something for me. No, I like the idea of making a film, but I'm not out there looking for, oh, I could play that part or that part. It's more that would be a good film. Weirdly, yes, I'm just realizing this. As maybe be part part of the you know get making sure that those roles come your way would be to to create them myself. Create them, yeah. yeah, maybe I think you're probably right, and I think the women who are really doing well in Hollywood are doing that. So I should take a leaf you, out of that well, book. Well, can you tell us about Twenty One Bridges? 
21 Bridges is like a Sydney Lamette style cop thriller. It takes place in one night. And I think I can't remember the amount of cops that are murdered, but several. And me and Chadwick Boseman have one night to catch these killers. And we close the island of Manhattan for one night. The 21 Bridges of Manhattan wow. is locked down. So it's a very high octane kind of adrenaline fueled chase. Sounds great. Yeah. Def- very different. <laughs> yes, much, I was say, much yes. more shiny. So there's the there's the TV, um, the loudest voice, yeah. the, the loudest voice. There's the shiny Twenty One Bridges, and there's the de- definitely not shiny uh, American <laughs> woman. But I think it's going to be a big deal, and I think people will love the performance of Sienna Miller as Deb. Sienna, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Sienna Miller uh, talking about her movie, and it was interesting that that section at the end when I'm saying, well, if you produced. Yeah, content, and then you could make sure that you get these roles. And it was, I mean, it may well be that she's saying this in every interview, but it, it's obviously she hadn't, she says, yes, the most successful women in, in, in my business are doing just that. So yeah, exactly. maybe I should, maybe I should do that. I was thinking, yes, <laughs> yes, far, far be it for me to give you career advice. Anyway, Sienna Miller, American woman. Well, the, the first thing to say about it is that her performance really is terrific. I mean, I've read a couple of things saying, you know, it, it, it's a real eye-opener. But if you look back, for example, I mean, Foxcatcher, American Sniper, Mississippi Grind, in which these are very, very good, you know, uh, supporting roles, in at least one of which, when I was watching it, I, I, halfway through, I didn't even realise it was Sienna Miller. High Rise, she is brilliant. She is just great. And that's a, a very, very important role, um, obviously, with James Gray and Lost City. And now uh, this, in which what, what Sienna Miller manages to do is to embody the various stages of somebody's life because the film takes place over a number of years during which a number of key changes happen. And in every single part of that life, I knew where she was, who she was, how she felt, why she felt it. And, And it's as much to do with with the way that she that she physically behaves as with what she said i'm you know again sorry show don't tell but it is a really really brilliantly physical performance it's not just that her face speaks volumes but it's to do with it's to do with the way when she's having conversations with people the way in which she stands the way in which she looks the way in which she holds her, her shoulders so i think her performance is great i think we've seen plenty of evidence that it could be that great up until that point because I think she really has done some terrific work and underrated work I think perhaps in the past um and I think it's her movie and she commands it and I you know and 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 hats off to her because I think it's just a brilliant performance the thing is that's not the only thing about the film um Jake Scott's direction uh of a script which is See, you, you, you said this in the interview. The thing is that the film is not about the, the story of, uh, you know, a, a, of a missing person. That is part of it, but that's not it. Um, the script by Brad Inglesby and the direction by um, Jake Scott both give all the characters time to breathe. And, and the characters and the story is not welded to that narrative arc what happens is, and I was thinking about this in terms of the films of Atamegoyan, it's a film that, for most of it, plays out in the aftermath of something inexplicable. And it's about people getting on with life when something unfaceable and unknowable has happened. And actually, one of the most impressive things about it, although I think it makes the film quite hard to market, is that that's what it's about. I mean... 
the film jumps forward several years after that that opening sequence, and we understand that her and her family have lived with this absence, with this lack of knowledge about what happened to her daughter, and but they have to they have to get on with their life, and we see the grandson growing up. And I think one of the things that I very much liked about the film is it deliberately. There are a number of moments in it in which it could have, you know, it could have moved towards cinematic revelation and it constantly steps back. There is one particular scene and we shan't discuss it because I think it's it, it, just to, to, to say what it was would, would spoil the film itself. But there is one moment in which the film literally, I must stop saying literally, in which the film really does do that thing about you think it's going to do something and then it doesn't. It moves on to the next section. And it is one of the best use of ellipsis that I have seen. And and, and also, without mentioning exactly anything yeah. about it, yeah. the original, because she says, because she said in the conversation, yeah. they actually filmed something that was in that space. Yes. And they then and they took it to out. Take it all out. And again. that's the thing about, you know, when you get to editing a film, cut your lovies, take, take out the scene that you think may have been the best scene and see whether the film works without it. So I thought in a, as a piece of storytelling, in terms of the construction, the way in which it knows what to show and what not to show, when to state and what not to state, it is a very well-constructed, very well-made film, and I think it's sensitively made. I think that the ensemble cast are terrific. You talked about the family across the street, you know, Christina Hendricks, and, and actually all of those characters, some of them you only see sort of thumbnail sketches, but they, they're fully rounded. That said, it is absolutely Sienna Miller's film because the 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 sort of the arc that you go through is her character as you see the young boy growing up. So you see her growing up, and you see her changing. By she is changed by what has happened to her. She has an indomitable spirit to some extent, but you feel the pain, you feel the ache, and the sort of and the you know and the loss. And as I said, I, when I compare it to Atomy Goyen. I mean that as the highest compliment. I didn't. I didn't really follow that analogy. Well, I mean, Atomy Goyen, who made things like Sweet Hereafter and Exotica, but who is a filmmaker who understands how to do that thing about a film, a story existing in the aftermath of something that is unfaceable. And actually, I think that American Woman does that, and I think Sienna Miller is terrific in it. And if there was, if there was any justice in the world, she would be up for awards. Uh, yeah, and don't be misled by the trailer. Although in this case, I would think it might not be the people that. That's why I said it's hard to market. It's very, very hard it's to very, describe it. I think we've done a very good job though between <laughs> us. You. If they'd like to hire us, then obviously we're available. You just said towards the end of that, Mark. You know, if there was any justice, she'd get nominated yeah. do you suspect that it's too much of a small release to catch fire it's always difficult mm. for smaller as uh, Sienna Miller was saying independent releases it's harder for them to to get that kind of uh, attention but uh, I think I mean bear in mind awards are voted for by people who saw a limited number of movies and one would hope that they saw this film but there's no guaranteeing it uh, just one more on Joker I mentioned at the start of the program that we had more emails about Joker than any other film yeah. for a very, very long time. Oscar Trunley-Smith, last Sunday, went to had a rare visit to our local cinema. See Joker, from the first ten minutes, I had a lump in my throat, a tear in my eye, not in my stomach. The intensity only increased as the film went on. By the end, I felt completely exhausted. I had to wipe away the hidden tears and then walk the streets of Dover shopping uh, with my better half. I found it very 
difficult to even talk to anyone. I just wanted to be on my own and process what I'd just seen. It's Tuesday now and I still cannot get this film out of my head. I've listened to That's Life on repeat every day and each time it brings me close to tears. My top two films of all time are Apocalypse Now and Blue Ruin. I think this film now that's sits... Blue Ruin, is that's what a great thing to have that as one of your top two films. I think we... I think we... We did... Uh, we covered that we and we had a guest for that. Yeah, Macon Blair, I think, came on. Uh, I think this film now sits above them and I can't imagine how anything will ever beat it. Thank you, Mr Phillips. Thank you, Mr Phoenix. You have created an absolute masterpiece, a film that I think has changed me as a human and how I see the world. Well, so there you go. Well. There's Oscar. I'll put him on the... I quite liked it. <laughs> pile Mayo at BBC. For further consideration, yes. pile. Yes. What else is uh, is out? Gemini Man. Will Smith goes head to head with his digitally conjured younger self. Um, oh, I in... saw this on the side of a bus. <laughs> yeah, and wondered. And you know, in a way, that may have been the best way to see it. So the film is by uh, Ang Lee, of course. You know who made uh, Life of Pi, but who has increasingly become. Very, very fixated with uh, pushing the boundaries of technology. I, I, I have to say, I feel at the, at the expense of storytelling. You know, you think of Wedding Banquet or Brokeback Mountain. Anyway, so the story is Will Smith is a retiring assassin who finds himself pursued by a youthful killer who seems to know his every move. Mm. It's almost as if he's looking in a mirror, albeit a mirror that makes him look a little bit weirdly artificial. <laughs> Here's a clip. Stop right there! Who are you? I don't want to shoot you. Fine. Don't shoot me. Fine if I shoot you. Did I show you a picture of me? Yeah, you look old. Kid, you take one step closer, you're gonna leave me no choice. Honking, honking soundtrack. And indeed, but yeah, that's not quite full bronze, but it's in the way. So the, the, the project, the Gemini Man project, dates back to 1997 when uh, Darren Lemke sold the concept of the film to Sony. Sony. And since then, there was apparently there was a test reel that was called The Human Face, and eventually the project was sort of shelved because they decided that technology wasn't there yet. And then over the years, it's been attached to everybody and their husbands. So Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, John Voight, Nick Cage, Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, Slicing. Everyone has sort of their names in there, directors variously spoken of, Tony Scott, Curtis Hanson, Joe Carnahan. Script has been rewritten, Billy Ray, Dave Benioff, Brian Helgeland. You know, so 2016, the project comes to Skydance and now comes to the screen with a script credited to Benioff, Ray and Lemke and directed by Ang Lee, who used that um, high frame 3D, uh, that's very high frame rate 3D on Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. And I don't know whether you remember, but I said when I reviewed that film, in some places you could see it in ordinary presentation, we saw it presented in the high frame rate. And it was one of those really weird things in which what happens is when you get to a certain high frame rate, so everything just starts to look like weird behind the scenes. Do you remember 48 frames per second for The Hobbit stuff? In which it just, yeah, yeah, fine. So uh, super high frame rate. I think I'm correct in saying 60 frames, 120, because it's it's left eye, right eye. I think I'm right. 
the interesting thing is I'm getting to the point that I don't care because the high frame rate thing for me is a really weirdly non-cinematic experience. A high frame rate was basically pioneered because it... I mean, Doug Trumbull, who's been doing some really interesting work with it in terms of, you know, things like UFOTOG. And, and I think actually Doug Trumbull was talking about using high frame rate back in the days of, uh, you know, when he was working with Natalie Wood years and years and years ago. But for me, what a high frame rate thing does is, OK, it's meant to solve a problem of transverse skitter when you have 3D. And if a camera moves left to right, the 3D will skitter slightly at normal frame rate. 48 frames, it doesn't. 120 just makes everything super real. So it looks like it's kind of happening in front of you. But also it's edited and it's cut out. like So it's a weird thing about something cinematic is happening, but it doesn't look cinematic. What it looks like is it's happening in front of you, but it's cinematically organised. And your brain goes, OK, in that case, it looks like behind the scenes footage. Sorry, that's how it looks. The weird thing is that um, there there are some sort of well-staged crashy bangy fights. There are some, you know, little action sequences which are, you know, well done. And uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead injecting a much-needed human note as the kind of ass-kicking sidekick who's, you know, who's, who's tough and strong and strange and, you know, interesting. But the problem with it was, particularly in the, the version in which I saw it, all you could concentrate on was the bizarre format which just made you think, OK, I'm looking at the bizarre de-aging process, which, of course, is done. Through, they said we had to create a full digital human being based on Will at 23 years old. It was nerve-wracking until we saw some tests, and then we knew he could do it. And so there are ideas in there that are sort of sub-Blade runner ideas about souls and bodies, and but I'm afraid that watching it, it was a totally uh, just distracting experience because it's like it's like it's like um, Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. He was so busy wondering whether you could, you never stopped to think if you should. And so after all this time, the technology has finally enabled them to do it. And you go, yeah, maybe the reason it didn't get made for all those years wasn't because the technology couldn't do it. It's because it's not that great. It's just a bit. Hmm. And this is a shame because I think that, you know, Ang Lee has been a great director and has done some great stuff. Also, it's interesting that, you know, they can do this incredible, you know, digital stuff that makes you think you're in the room and makes you think it's 3D and makes you think there are two Will Smiths, but they can't give Clive Owen a decent American accent. I mean, you'd think they'd sort that out. Yes, but they don't. No. It would be a bit like the Simon Mayo from 1991 comic relief with Frankie Howard <laughs> coming back... <laughs> And cheat and trying to kill me. Or co-present the show with you next week. Yes, that would be exactly like that. But that would be funnier and, and be more interesting. So he'd, he'd wear a perky jacket, though. He would. <laughs> and, you, and you'd feel really good. Um, Bernie Harper. Oh, yes. Uh, <clears throat> were it not for the excessively nasty body count, Gemini Man would be the perfect action movie. For those of us who loved the innovations of the Bourne Identity, Terminator 2, Crouching Tiger, Planet of the Apes, that's not one film. That's a <laughs> that, that would be one heck of a film. And first person... Re re read me that title again. Crouching Tiger, Planet of the Apes. That's... You see, that's what you, want. that's what you want. First-person computer game, such joys and much more is crammed into Ang Lee's latest movie. Will Smith makes being 30 years younger seem effortless, inhabiting both roles with charm, energy and emotion. The 3D is dialled up for the action scenes, whilst high-frame rate right. motion gives astonishing sharpness to the whole movie and a thumpingly kinetic intensity to the explosive conclusion. Yeah, can I just say... No, it doesn't. It makes Billy Lynn's long halftime walk look like 
a long walk at half time. Which it was. I suspect the uncanny valley is more apparent at the 60 frame per second I saw than it would be in the 2D 24 frames per second. Whilst the benefits of CGI and motion capture are again demonstrated. Don't sorry, be, sorry, don't be sorry, to our listener. sorry. I'm not being rude to the listener. It's just the. Te- Go on. HFR, high frame rate, presumably, itself is still a work in progress. Yet I found myself. <laughs> yeah, you're not kidding. Quickly warming to this movie, and the smiles rarely left my face until the end. The final reveal is both highly predictable and yet strangely moving. Gemini Man shows once again that Ang Lee can deliver high tech films that are as emotional as they are visually and viscerally immersive. Okay, can I just say, um, firstly, <coughs> firstly, I wasn't taking the mick out of the thing. I was, it's the high frame rate thing. I, I just, I don't care anymore. I don't care anymore. Which, which bit don't you care about? The about? high frame rate thing, because it's like, yes, it's a work in progress, but you know what? So far, all the progress has been, yeah, this isn't cinema. This is something else. I mean, weirdly, Why is it cinema? Because there is a quality to the image which actually doesn't, as far as I'm concerned, doesn't work with narrative cinema. What it works with is experiential fairground ride stuff. And it's, that's why, for example, Doug Trumbull actually started out doing those kind of installations. And the he kind was of the director that you... He, Doug Trumbull like was the guy much. who did um, the Stargate sequence on 2001, directed Silent Running, which is one of the greatest films of all, all time, directed uh, Dreamscape. You know, he's, he's the person who, who... Brainstorm. He's the person... Dreamscape. He's the person... Was, no, Dreamstorm. Regular, he's Literally. the person who was basically the forefront of pushing that stuff. And, um, and I think he's great, really, really interesting. But it's interesting that UFO Tog is a short film and it's a short experiential film. It's not, it just doesn't, I don't think it, and I think it's a shame because I think Ang Lee is a brilliant filmmaker and I just think he should go back to making brilliant films and stop trying to reinvent the wheel with high frame rate 3D because it's, it's, it's not, it's not cinematic. Thank you very much. So you, you. It's, it's a bit like Smell-O-Vision or one of those kind of things, which Smell-O-Vision is fine was, for a five-minute yeah, exactly. novelty. Yes, Smell-O-Vision, I mean, polyester, I think, is, you know, the scratch and sniff cards in polyester will live with me for some time. 17 minutes past four o'clock. If you want to get involved, you can you can watch the fun. You know, we're, this is actually live on the Fire Live website and we look fabulous today. Yeah. You can email May at bbc.co.uk. You can tweet at Wittertainment. What else you got? Dolomite is my name. The, the last time Eddie Murphy was declared to be back on form was Dreamgirls, after which he immediately blew it with Norbit. And do you remember this? There was I a moment everyone said, Eddie that. Murphy's going to get an... Oh, heavens. He's, you know. he, yeah. So now Eddie Murphy back on form again um, with a real-life story written by Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski. Now, you will remember the name Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski because they wrote... Which real-life film about a husband and wife team of painters who were famous for doing pictures with big eyes? Was it big, big eyes? eyes? Well done, the Tim Burton. I was. Film. I kind of fed it to you, and, and you did. And, you did and on a plate. I did. So Scott well, Alexander and Larry Karaszewski have written a number of things: People versus Larry, Flint, Man on the Moon, and most notably Ed Wood which is the Tim Burton film about Ed Wood, the, in inverted commas, worst filmmaker in the world. This is a very much a precursor of uh, The Disaster Artist. And Ed Wood was a film about Ed Wood making, leading up to making Plan 9 from Outer Space, but told with real affection for um, the fact that he had a dream of making a film and you know what, he got to make it. So this is the story of Rudy Ray Moore, who's a stand-up uh, in the 70s, who is considered by some to be a very influential figure in the emergence of rap he had this kind of foul mouthed uh, pimp persona rhyming pimp persona named dolomite and he went on to start 
in a black exploitation movie called uh, Dolomite, which which he pretty much self-funded. The film was made using film students to do the actual filming work because, as he said himself, he knew nothing about filming. And despite an initial critical kicking, it went on to make money to spawn not one but two sequels and to become a bizarre cult item. So Murphy plays uh, uh, Rudy Ray Moore. King Michael Keyes is the playwright who, not unlike Barton Fink, wants to make important theatre, but gets talked into working in the movie business, which he's not quite ready for. Here's a clip. We want this thing to be raw. Tell it like it is on the streets. Yeah, lots of pimps and whores and cussing. And kung fu and karate. Brothers love all that kung fu and karate. Do you know karate? No, but I'm a fast learner. I can learn how to chop me a mother. You know what we should have? An all-girl kung fu army. Um... You know, there's there's plenty of story opportunity, Rudy. Across this nation, inner cities are being plagued by violent crime. I I feel the government hasn't stepped up. That's it. It's Whitey's fault. The mayor's corrupt, and there's an exorcism. God damn it, an exorcism. Yeah, you know all that. Oh, mother in hell. Um, I don't know how that fits into our urban uh, motif. I'd also, I'd just like to ask for a, a standing ovation for our editing team. Well done. I know. T- oh, well I well done. I was expecting a few words to to appear, and then they kind of they did they, 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 they were swallowed. That was kind of very well done. So, um, I mean, it is there are obvious comparisons with the disaster artist recently, but I think there is much more in connection with Ed Wood, and also weirdly with the with with Badass, which was the film about the making of Sweet Sweetback's Badass song. So Mario and Melvin Van Peebles sort of making and then retelling that story, which which this does owe a certain debt to. I mean, basically, the central character is, in this particular case, a kind of one-man film industry who, despite a lack of knowledge about or experience of the film industry, kind of wills this film into existence just through sort of through through sheer you know, personality and determination and through sort of draining his own bank account. It also helps that there are some great supporting performances, notably Divine Joy Randolph as Lady Reed, who Rudy spies in a bar, punching a guy out. And he sees in her a kind of star quality that she hasn't seen in herself. And that's a really, really great performance. There's also a very loose term from Wesley Snipes as Deville Martin, who, who ends up directing the film... And rather than saying action, says action. Nice. Yeah, and it's 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 really good fun. It's spectacularly unpolitically correct. Um, it is. It's a film from the kind of you know the Roger Corman stable, and it's full of uh, Eddie Murphy, as he said. In, uh, you heard from that clip, you know, cussing and uh, and uh, using completely unreconstructed terminology. But what the film does. And in, in much the same way as I think Ed Wood did, is that it makes you side with the hopeless, the person who does not know what they're doing. Actually, the same can be said of disaster artists. And actually makes you end up rooting for them. And there's a lot of good stuff about critics, what do they know, which I enjoyed particularly. But I thought it was, I thought it was really good fun. It's a Netflix movie. Um, there is a theatrical arm to its release. Um, but does, I thought... It, does that mean... It'll be quite tricky to see. I'm not sure. I mean, I, you'll have to... It is playing in cinemas, but we're in London. It's playing in cinemas around here. I'm not sure what the kind of reach of the rest of it will be. We'll, we'll maybe see if we can get a list and, and tweet the list of places that it's playing. But I thought it was, a, I thought it was really good fun. And what's it called again? It's called... Dol- My name is Dolomite. OK. Um, 
Uh, that's one of the new releases. No, it's called Dolomite Is My Name. I beg your pardon. Is my Dolomite name Dolomite? Is, no, Dolomite Is My Name. Okay. I'm just sure. going to check. I'm, I'm going to just check that it's called Dolomite Is My Name. Yes, right. not My Name is Dolomite. Sorry. Uh, 4.23. What else we got? Well, sticking with Netflix back projects, The King, which is very... Were you talking about this the other day? The King? You were t- Yeah, you were talking about Robert... We'll get to it. Okay, so The King, which is very loose... I told you about it. Yes, have you seen it? Yes. For, for why did you see it? Uh, we, there was a chance that we might be doing some interviews with some of the cast. Okay, great. Brilliant. Okay, so you've seen it, so good. Okay, so... But I also interviewed Nicholas Patel. Oh, fine. Got it. Right, so... Who does the soundtrack? Yeah, if I can move on now, I'll yes. come back to you. And okay. Now back to Stop. Mark. Okay. With his thoughts on this latest film. Here's Mark. Now, on Five Life. Very loosely adapted from Shakespeare's Henriad plays. Is that what we call them? Henry, the Henriad. Henriad. Yeah, that's when I looked it up. I've never yeah. heard that word well, before. I'd like to say I don't know because I am massively ignorant based in the on way. Henry V. Can you say that? No, no, but but there's more than that, isn't it? It's based on the other. It's based on the on that on a group of plays. It, you may well be correct, but nobody actually uses the word Henriad, do they? Ex- except for think. Wikipedia, apparently. Well. Okay. Okay. I'm going to use that word today somewhere. Timothy Chalamet, who's called me by my name is Dolomite. <laughs> oh, never mind. That joke went over your head. Uh, Timothy Chalamet is the slightly strangely accented wastrel who, at the beginning of the film, is, uh, you know, a carousing and a drinking around the taverns of London, and who then has to step up to become regal after the death of his father, played with the usual sort of sense of menace by Ben Mendelsohn. And Joel is good at that kind of thing. He is very, very good. We'd like somebody who's quiet but menacing. Is Ben Mendelsohn busy? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Joel Edgerton plays Falstaff, who he plays as a loyal friend, who then also becomes the voice of the king's conscience when war with France looms. Here's a clip. No one told French prisoners are not trained put to death. And leave their corpses speared on pikes by the river's edge. You'll have to carry out that mass execution yourself. What did you say to me? You are not that man. How dare you defy me? So you're feeling in here with me? Don't oh, let dear, it out so I am the king. And where is the fearsome old warrior Falstaff about whom I've heard so much? And you've been mute since we crossed the sea. You seem to be serving as my own chief tactician, my own commander, my own counsel. Where is the fearsome old warrior Falstaff? Uh, you could hear in the back of that the, the rumblings of the Nicholas Brittell score, which actually I think is is really terrific, but I'm a huge fan of Nicholas Brittell and almost everything that he does, and I think he's... And you had the privilege of meeting him, and I think he's a really, really fine composer. He's like 14. Yeah, I know. That's just... It, it, it's it's really worrying, talented. isn't it? Okay. So uh, Edgerton co-wrote the script with uh, David Michaud, who made Animal Kingdom and The Rover and a couple of other things, and the star-studded cast includes um, Robert Pattinson as the Dauphin, and I think you said this, and I, I didn't know what it was that you were talking about because I hadn't seen the film at the time. It's an interesting scene because he plays the Dauphin as a character who you do half expect to fart in your general direction whilst throwing a cow over the battlements. It is a little bit Python-esque. It's, yes. it's not a little bit python okay. it is, he, he does it. I mean, but what's funny is it's not a bad French accent. I mean, it's not Clive Owen doing American. It's... It's just a very, very ripe accent because he plays the Dauphin as this kind of 
sort of almost a foppy kind of slightly rancid character who plays with uh, plays with uh, his, his opponent. You know, you come here, you come here to surrender, but I am doing something with with me with my hands at the moment. I I will talk to you when I finished gesturing in a strange way. That's that. That's <laughs> that's disturbingly French. It is unlike, but, unlike his. I mean, his accent is fine. In the screen that I, I went to, everybody yeah. just fell about laughing. At that <laughs> oh, did they? Yes. You actually got the full every laughter every time. Every time Robert Pattinson opened his mouth, okay, everyone laughed because I saw it at home because it's a it's a, also a Netflix back film. So in the audience, there was laughter. Was there? Non-st- whenever Robert Pattinson spoke, <laughs> everyone laughed. <laughs> It would have been fine. Everyone was just sitting quite interested, you know, all the way through. And then Pattinson starts speaking. Who I love, incidentally. We, like I, we love Robert Pattinson. And enjoy speaking to him. And then he started to speak and everyone thought, it's John Cleese. <laughs> and so the next time he's actually just kind of carried on, everyone started to laugh <laughs> as soon as they saw him. <laughs> Hang on, here comes the Dauphin again. But this was like, it was weird because you, I, you had, I overheard you saying this. It was a few weeks ago. And it stuck in my brain and I couldn't think what it was that you were talking about. And then the minute he opened his mouth, I went, that's what Mayo meant Correct. when he said it was the thing. Um, the film itself is quite stodgy. It lands a couple of blows, most particularly during the battle sequences, mm. which are like a muddy pub car park fight. I mean, you really get the sense of people bashing each other's heads in in massively inglorious circumstances. It does it does that thing about making war look, well, particularly that kind of war, just look grim and mucky and there's no there's no sense of triumph about it is at all but by the time you get to the end of the battle everyone is either dead or completely covered from head to foot in filth although henry did win and the french did lose yeah is that a plot spoiler or do we know that that's what happened i don't think that's there is the battle of azure yeah but there is a bit as well when somebody says oh yes well you know this i am going to forever the will thing was on this particular field where is the field oh it's agincourt you know it's oh that's (laughs) it's that field i thought the the battle scenes were good the long the battle scene was very good those were good and it did do a pretty good because sometimes battles are chaotic and and indeed some parts of it but in terms of explaining the tactics that are outnumbered we're going to lure them into this then we're going to from the side and then the arrow and the thingy yeah absolutely and I, I also think uh, Sean Harris was st- scene stealing as uh, Lord William and it's also great to see Thompson Harcourt McKenzie or just Thompson McKenzie I believe now in a small but actually rather crucial role which is which is terrific because I think she's a she's a great actor I'm not sure that it actually all adds up to very much there are individual elements in it that are admirable but I'm not sure that it's going to live with me or stay with me for a particularly long time no. afterwards. It was quite nice to see the Battle of Agincourt on a, in a movie because I hadn't seen that done for, a, yeah, it's, for it's, a very long time. It's not something which is visited that often. Did you feel at any stage uh, uncomfortable about the... Because obviously Henry V has to do a big kind of speech to his troops. Mm-hmm. And there was a, an element of that and I thought, mm, it, I'm sure it was fine and it, it, it's time it feels a little bit uh, uncomfortable. Yeah given yeah. where we are. Yeah. You did feel that. Yeah. Just checking. Yeah. Um, Jack on this But email. well done for not saying that out loud, because otherwise we'd have to go on a course. Dear, the king is dead, and I'm sorry, Mark, but the king is definitely dead. <laughs> My girlfriend and I managed to get some tickets to see the king, and I must say I have never seen a film take itself so seriously <laughs> and yet be so silly at the same time. Departing from Shakespeare usually allows the opportunity for more historical accuracy, but this film manages to make the Bard's version look like it was researched by Woodward and Bernstein. <laughs> 
you have Falstaff as a bona fide war hero, ludicrous mano a mano duels, and the King of England engaged in the sort of soap opera sleuthing that only Colleen Rooney has time for. Yet all of this is played out in a ponderous scenes against a portentous score. The shots portentous. Portentous score. Portentous. Portentous score. The shots are beautifully composed, as is the music, but it suggests a depth which simply isn't there. Given that, I didn't know whether to delight or despair in the arrival of the character of the Dauphin. The French villain the Dauphin. is essentially Robert Pattinson, <laughs> giving us a pallid version of John Cleese farting in our general direction. There we go, there we go. Such a sorry disappointment as Chalamet delivers another impressive performance which deserves better, and the high production values show what an opportunity this was. It just needed them to go once more onto the script, dear friends. Um, it is interesting when you see these Netflix films, I think we mentioned this before. Every time you go and see a movie, it says you get the logo of everyone who's contributed money. Yeah. And there's half a dozen, and there's some that logos you recognise, and there's some that you don't, and there's BBC Films, and then there's, you know, regional Southwest yeah. television, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> That's right. But it's Netflix. It's just Netflix. Netflix. Who pay for everything? <laughs> they must be like a film producer's delight. Do we need to scrabble around? And get the Isle of Man to pay. No. Oi. Netflix. Oi. No, I'm just saying, do we need to get them? We don't. This is like, which which city did you impugn the other Croydon. week? Croydon. Do we need the Croydon Arts Council? I think Croydon's not a city, actually. We don't, we don't need the don't. Croydon Arts Council. We don't need anyone to contribute because Netflix are just going to cough the whole thing up. TV movie of the week. Best films on subscription-free TV posted on our socials every Wednesday, which I know you check, Mark, when they go up. I do. Mark Slade says Mad Max Fury Road is one of the most sensory overloaded films I've ever seen and one of the most enjoyable for it. Charlie's Thron is the true star of the film. Well done. And is a hypnotic presence throughout. I reckon Mark will choose that. Moonlight w- uh, would, would certainly be mine. Arguably the best film I've seen in the last 25 years. Robert Sison on Twitter, in Bruges, is what all films should aspire to be. <laughs> Runtime, comfortable, script, perfect, performances, outstanding, locations, magical. Mark Cole says, there are far better movies on the list, but I love Chef. It's got great heart and more people need to see it. No film will ever make you need a grilled cheese sandwich more. <laughs> James Adamson, Rear Window and Vertigo were my first introductions to Hitch- Hitchcock. Thanks, Mum. And initially, I loved the former film, but was turned off by the latter. Later, I watched it again and was mesmerised. Vertigo is Hitchcock's masterpiece and one of the greatest films of all time, so I'm picking Vertigo. Clive Albright, when a list has Vertigo and Rear Window, it makes it difficult to choose anything other than those two classics. I'll be watching Bombshell, the Hedy Lamarr story. Or is that Hedley Lamarr? Hedley. Mark will <laughs> pick good. Moonlight. Well done. Thank you. And Richard Darlin, I like films where directors take a risk and succeed in directing within tight restrictions. Rear Window is a brilliant example of technical accomplishment, i.e. filming from within just one room. And Andy O'Donnell, The Ghoul, because I can't remember the last time a horror film, British or otherwise, stayed with me for days, or I didn't have to rely on some kind of cattle prod cinema. TV movie of the week is... I'm going to go for Moonlight. I did toy with the idea of In Bruges. I mean, the Hitchcocks obviously are brilliant, and particularly since I did a Secrets of Cinema about science fiction in which we were talking about, you know, time travel going back to to Hitchcock. But I'm going to go for Moonlight because Moonlight is one of my favourite films this side of the 21st century, and I think it's 
it's just brilliant. I think Barry Jenkins did a brilliant job of it. And again, Nicholas Brittell score, but it's also it's all that uh, chopped and screwed uh, soundtrack in which it, and, uh, the use of um, uh, Hello Stranger by Barbara Lewis is just brilliant. So I'm going to go for that. And that is, before you leap in and ask me, yes. Nine at Night on Saturday on Channel 4. And I know Channel 4, I know how to find it. You uh, just press four. You do. And Nicholas Patel is also doing the music to the Colson Whitehead book, The Underground Railroad, uh, oh. which is going to be a TV adaptation. Which is, So that'll be... And Barry Jenkins and that's is Barry Jenkins, it. yes, absolutely. And he was talking about doing The Underground Railroad when he was doing How great Moonlight. Is that gonna that's, that's going to be fantastic. TV movie of the week, so bad, it's bad. Simon Williams, come on. Waterworld, really? It's not so bad. And if it hadn't had Costner and a budget which would shame a moon landing, it would have passed without comment. Simon Belcher, bad day to try hard is this week's obvious choice. <laughs> Think of it as a sequel to last week's so bad, it's bad. At least Waterworld was made into an apparently good theme park ride, according to Mark last week. Yeah, it was. Bethany says, I once had to watch Turbo with my friend's children whilst babysitting. The news that their cat was being put to sleep whilst we were watching it may have been influencing my memories, but I remember it as being utter tosh. It was mindless, derivative tosh. Christopher Daly, good day to die hard, a good day to keep the TV switched off. Faith Clements, is it still OK to hate Waterworld? It made all of its money back and more. The stunt work alone is worthy of praise and there hasn't been any film made like it since. It's not a bad film and shouldn't be on the list. Maddie Grant Turbo is so bad that if the DVD is on at our son's After Hours Social Club, the children will ask for it to be changed. <laughs> Which is... that's, that's almost like the lowest possible bar, yeah. is it? Would you like Turbo or not? A silent scream. <laughs> uh, Mark Smith Turbo is the only film I took my then five-year-old son to, and he turned to me halfway through and said, is this finished yet? It's stupid. <laughs> What's the TV movie of the week so bad well, it's bad? because of the fact that, it, that it's... Well, two reasons. Firstly, because it's now suffering a reassessment, which I object to. And secondly, because the great Simon Brew, who's a friend of mine, sent me a, a message saying, if you choose Waterworld for this week's you so bad DVD, Waterworld. I'm going to scour the earth for every copy of The Exorcist and hold them ransom. I'm sorry, Waterworld... I like Waterworld. No, you don't. I did. What's the plot of Waterworld? It's great. Kevin Costner is a fish. Yes, that's fine. I liked it. I enjoyed it. Did you really? I did enjoy it. Okay, well, the, but mainly because everyone had told me how rubbish it was, and yeah. I thought, okay, it the is, reason, but I'm having a good time. The reason Waterworld is industrially important is it was the it was the tipping point moment at which it was demonstrated that if you make the budget the story, the film will make its money back. And although the whole thing about there's not enough money in the world to pay for Waterworld, Waterworld did end up... I mean, there was various conniptions about who owned it and blah, blah, but it did end up making its money back. And it was the point at which it was like that. You, everyone went, oh, OK, fine, fine. There are certain rules that you can follow and, and, and we, we, we won't lose our shirts. And I'm sorry, Waterworld deserved to, and I use the pun deliberately, sink without trace. No, it's, Kevin it's, Costner it's good. is a fish. You know, in the when's original... It, when's it on? In the original versions of the script, Waterworld it can be avoided at uh, nine at night on Saturday on Five Spike. Five Spike? Yes. I wonder whether Five Spike have ever showed Fan Forstick. Um, I have no idea. In the original versions of the script, he had... It wasn't just residual gills. He had much more residual gills. I mean, he was much more fishy. Is that like a, a contractual thing? And I he did, went... Have you your residuals? I did go. 
Well, yes, his residuals, I'm sure, are absolutely fine. Anyway, I think it's very good. Who is the baddie in Waterworld? I've got no idea. Dennis Hopper. Oh, well, there you go. Two more reasons for (laughs) Quarter to five. And what was the plot? There's a lot of water. There's water. It's fine. Dry land. Stunts. He's got a map on his back. He's a fish. Seen worse. (laughs) Yeah, Um. really. What else? So especially for the great Simon Okay, so um, Abominable, uh, a sort of blandly charming, occasionally a uh, little bit thrilling animation from DreamWorks. Chloe Bennett voices Yi, who's a young girl who befriends a yeti, which is escaping from the clutches of a wealthy eccentric, uh, voiced by Eddie Izzard, sounding very Eddie Izzard, with, accompanied by two friends. She uh, vows to return this magical creature to the highest point on Earth, and they call him Everest, obviously. Hey, you guys, wait right there. <laughs> Ooh, Everest, look, make a wish. No, no, they're for wishing. I wish I was a basketball superstar. <sighs> Starting in the championship game, the mighty <laughs> Wait, is that a drone? Uh, what now? I wish there was a way out of here. Uh, what's going on? Oh, Yi, let go of that. It's dangerous. Severus, are you sure about this? No, Peng, get down from there right now. So that low rumbling sound that you heard is the kind of magical power which transforms the world around them. And in fact, there are some really beautifully rendered sequences. There is a sequence in which this kind of landscape, this is in the, in the trailer, you've probably seen in the clip, in which this landscape of yellow flowers is able to be ridden like a huge sort of surfing wave. There's another scene which involves climbing up uh, a huge giant Buddha statue and then playing a violin and the music kind of causes these the flowers to blossom around them and there was there were a couple of moments when I looked at it and thought oh that's that's that is that's lovely that's really breathtaking magical there are other moments when you think it looks like it's you know put together from a collection of familiar elements I mean there are people have pointed out there are hints of ET and hints of how to train your dragon although I was thinking of you know of Leica's Missing Link, you know, which is the Bigfoot film, which is a very, very different film. And I have a, a I, I'm very drawn to that kind of stop motion physicality. So I didn't think it was classic in any means, but it's perfectly, perfectly fine. It's a little bit bland with moments of sort of magical stuff in it. And I'm sure that it'll charm a certain audience. I don't think it's life changing in any way, but it's perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. But you really can't be bothered. No, it's not even that I can't be bothered. As I said, I think there are a couple of sequences in it which I did think were were were, were really quite charming. And and it, I mean, I'm st- I'm still at that point in my life that I do look at some of the things that is achieved by modern movie making techniques and think, wow, that is astonishingly beautiful. I just I think I wanted a little bit more, but it's fine. Okay, uh, that will mean the holidays and the half term is on the way. What else? <laughs> yes, what else right. have we got? Uh, the day shall come, which is the latest from Chris Morris um, about the you know arch uh, agent provocateur Chris Morris about the farce at the heart of uh, American homeland security. The film is inspired by some real cases, including the case of Liberty City 7, and it's a story of a bunch of renegade misfits effectively being fitted up by the FBI. In fact, in the, one of the, the cases that it was based on, there was a, they were fitted up by the FBI and um, 
they were convicted of being involved in a plot which it turns out involved the conjuring of a tidal wave um, in, you know, in just kind of completely absurdist fashion. And Chris Morris's point is the absurdity of real life can only be kind of dealt with by the absurdity of comedy. So here, Marchand Davis is Moses, who runs a community and farm project dedicated to education, martial arts and chicken farming. He believes that the great inversion is coming, which is a revolution that will, you know, invert the current uh, order. But this will be a revolution that will not be achieved using the gun weapon because they don't believe in the gun weapon. They believe only in more traditional uh, forms of weaponry, which appear to include uh, his ability to bring down cranes with his mind and a horn, which he believes will summon dinosaurs that are being kept in secret labs by the CIA. So right. generally harmless, OK? Or what's the Douglas Adams phrase? Mostly, Mostly harmless. harmless yeah. uh, the FBI are desperate uh, to find a target, and somehow they stumble across him. Here's a clip. The waters rise, brothers and sisters. The drains back up. The basements of South Beach brim with reeking flotsam. But the city turns away, ignores the signs. Prepare ye. For the day that approaches is the day of the great inversion. On that day, the cranes of the gentrificators shall fall, and we shall overthrow the injustice of the white European. Till then, Allah enjoins us to grow strong and to prepare. Are you ready to rule? We are ready to rule. As you can hear, it's an army of four. So it's basically this very small little project with some crackpot ideas, but also a sort of certain weird nobility. And what happens is that the FBI are desperate to find somebody that they can, you know, that they can uh, 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 fit up as, uh, you know, obviously a major terrorist threat. But the only way they can do it is if if the, the, the person or the group start to become a threat. So Anna Kendrick is the FBI agent who, in need of a career-boosting conviction, conspires to send somebody to offer them money and guns they don't want guns because they don't believe in guns they don't believe in, in violence they believe in, uh, in they believe that god speaks to them through a duck and um, but Fair on the enough. other hand they do need money because they're about to lose the farm it's about to be repossessed so they enter into discussions about the money and the guns and the fbi oh great fine now we can now we can get them because we fed them up but actually no moses isn't interested in the guns he only wants to make fences out of them and he also wants to turn himself into the authorities and possibly claim the reward for turning himself into the authorities thereby stopping a crime that he wasn't going to commit anyway. So the whole thing then becomes this kind of cyclical double bluff. It was described by Morris, I think quite accurately, as a situation in which the central character is, is in a play that he doesn't realise has been scripted for him by the FBI. And as the, uh, as the plot continues, the absurdities become more and more absurd. And it is a film which is absolutely packed with, uh, with, kind, with double negatives, which include things like... Um, there's a line in which he says, so hang on, his get out of jail free card is going to jail. And there's a very sort of Dr. Strange lovey sequence in which in order to in order to prevent the announcement of a non-existent weapons of mass destruction emergency, it is first necessary to announce the weapons of mass destruction emergency and accept that it exists so that you can therefore argue that it doesn't exist. So it's, the whole thing is about this. The whole thing is about the kind of the absurd uh, circularity of it. What I think 
is what I think works is at the centre of it there is a there is a thread of pathos and of sympathy and of empathy which is really really important because otherwise it would just be a kind of absurdist tragic comedy about everyone chasing their trail their, their, their tail and about people being stitched up. But because what you have in the figure of Moses, brilliantly played, I've said by Marshall Davis, who I think is a great, you know, really, really fine screen presence, you do have a character who, who, with whom you you empathise, who, as I said, has this kind of strange nobility in the in the ideas that he believes in, which are completely crazy. But on the other hand, you know, there's something quite admirable about the fact that he has no interest in the gun weapon. He has no interest in in violence. He just believes in these things that he believes in. Um, the other thing is that. During the course of the movie, that central FBI character sort of starts to become the person who realises just how absurd and just how unjust what's going on is. And it's a film which, as it moves towards its final act, and the plot becomes completely labyrinthine and completely completely confused, deliberately so, but it doesn't bottle it. It doesn't... uh, offer kind of happy, nice, tied-up endings. And I think that's important because I think underneath it, it does have a genuine justified anger at the injustice of a world in which it is easier to create non-existent terrorists and arrest them than it is to actually track down terrorists. So I think, like all of Morris's stuff, it has um, it has a point, and I did laugh. Um, it doesn't have the bite or the edginess of uh, For Lions, but but then it's, you know, and it's been quite a while since then. Nor does it have that kind of incredible surreal quality of some of his TV work, if, which even if you remember when we were at the uh, Radio One, I think he was doing the the Blue Jam Radio Show was, at that yeah. point. And uh, but I think it's I think it's. It's very, as as always with this stuff, it's well-researched. Its heart is solidly in the right place. It is funny when it needs to be. I don't think it's as, I don't think it's as pithy or as pointed um, as some of his best work, but I, uh, but I broadly appro- I approve of it, and I think some of it is, is very funny. It's just not quite as biting as I think it needed to be, but it does have a very, very good central performance, and it does have that string of pathos, which is very important. Uh, it's five minutes to five o'clock. Uh, we're nearly done. Drive's on the way, but you have another film to uh, to get in before we're done. Dead Centre, which is this kind of psychological horror thriller in which Shane Carruth, who, of course, made Primer and Upstream Colour, um, acts. Uh, this is written and directed by Billy Sinise, or Sinise, I think Sinise. Uh, it begins with a body being prepared in a hospital morgue, and uh, the body is then put into the hospital morgue and then coughs and wakes up. The body then walks through the hospital uh, morgue and gets into a bed. A mental health doctor who believes in a progressive approach to mental health finds the person, thinks that it is a patient that's wandered in off the street who is a danger to himself, thinks he is a risk, and says, OK, we will take him in, not knowing that the last time he was seen was in the morgue. Here's a clip. I'd like to ask you some questions. Is that OK? Yes. Do you know where you are? Yes. I'm in the hospital. Do you know how you came to be here? I died. When I came back, wasn't the first time. Explain that. What does that mean, not the first time? I can't kill it. It came back with me in the fire. 
I wanted into this world. It's inside of me now. Can't stop it. I thought I could. It's an odd little film. I think its primary audience will probably see it on a small screen. I don't think it's going to have a huge uh, theatrical impact by any means. There's a couple of reasons why I like it. One of them is that it owes, in my opinion, a very weighty debt to Exorcist 3, which should have been Legion, um, you know, but was, was turned into Exorcist 3, which is a film written and directed by William Peter Blatty in which there is a... A, a central uh, serial killer figure that is jumping from body to body amongst catatonics. Catatonics are so easy to possess is the kind of is the the, sort of the tagline through it. And it was a weird thing because Exorcist Three was a very compromised movie in its released version. But it's amazing how many films since then have recycled ideas that come from that film. And I think it's ve- it's just very very encouraging. Because it because it didn't get kind of uh, it didn't get properly treated at the time either by the studio or I think probably by the critics. It's interesting to see how much its influence still lives on. And whenever I see a film that refers back to Exorcist Three, I you know and, and I see it all the time. In what think, way? In what way does it reflect? Because it's a story about a central character who is talking, as you heard in that clip, about something that is inside him that he thought he couldn't control, that he thought he could control, but it turns out he can't. So there's an element of oh, there's a supernatural thing. At the very very beginning, we saw that it was a, a, a core that was dead but then came back to life and of course at the beginning of Exodus 3 or certainly the beginning of Legion Karis's body is dead and then that body then reanimates in the in as a character who just who says that they are the Gemini killer so there are very very close narrative connections between the two things um I think it benefits from uh an effectively realistic uh, sort of medical milieu, you do feel like you are in those corridors. And the other thing I think, as you heard from that, the way in which the sound design and the soundscape is done is, is I think, brooding and unsettling, punctuated by a kind of screen that recalls the, the Kaufman remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. There's a touch of Green Mile in there as well. But I thought it was a, a good, creepy little chiller. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Next week, Ben Bailey-Smith will be here with Mark and he'll be talking to Elle Fanning and Angelina Jolie, which makes me very jealous. Mark, what is your film of the week? I'm going to go for American Woman. Well, that was a very fine show. I remembered halfway through the show that it wasn't a prince, it was a duke, by the way. Oh, OK. Who, came, who was being brought around by the head of BBC something or other <laughs> BBC and, then, something. and stood behind me. It was like Duke of Kent. But what, sorry, what, did he stand behind you in the studio? Yes. Why? Wanted to see, encourage, to encourage the troops. Well done. How does this happen? Oh, you speak. Is there a script? My predecessor, my long lost person, he used to have a script when he resigned as king. <laughs> I'm not trying to look like him. I just find that I can anyway. This is a beard. What do you think? So, uh, yeah, I just, in general, I find royalty peering over your shoulder annoying. Yeah, I have to say it's a niche problem. It is a niche problem, but when management file in, Apparently they weren't, all those people filed in, they weren't even management, they were like visitors. There used to be a thing that... Um, How did th- they get in? Maybe they were protesters. <laughs> That'll get taken yeah. off. There used to be a thing that if the Queen was doing like a royal walk around or something, or the Prime Minister or something, that there was a possibility that they'd stop outside your house and come in for tea. 
Do you remember that? There was no. used to be this. No, there yes. wasn't. No, there was a thing. This it, is what? Yes, people used to talk about, you know, oh, there's a royal visit or a prime minister's visit, and yes. people would clean their front rooms in case, as the celebrated personage did. were. All right. Who I, told you that then? My mum. Well, you're my. So you're my. In case if there was a royal. Or political... No, I didn't say my mum did it. I said my mum told, told me about okay. it. That if you were... Yes, that if there was like a... Ro- back, the visitors are back. Now... I'm not going to look because... Now we know they're not management. I'm not even going to look at them. You're not there. even going to notice. No, they can All right. take a hike. It used to be a thing. And there's, in fact, there was even sitcoms about it. There was even sitcom sketches about... Well, a I can visit Terry somebody. and June doing it. Yes, but it was only funny because in the real world that 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 was a myth, or maybe maybe it did actually. Happen. I'm sure that I remember an actual piece of news footage the of, Queens of the in Queen Sussex. Yes, and she put, she popped into uh, Benny Blingblong's front room where she had a refreshing cup of tea and a sam- you know sandwich, mum. That never happened. I, That's like an episode of Dad's Arm. No, I think it did happen. Okay, well we'll find out, shall we? Yeah. That's either so you can. Winston Churchill took a little bit of a break when he used somebody else's WC on his blah blah blah. <laughs> that never happened. <laughs> Hello, I wonder if I could use. I think your I think your mum was having a joke. I know my son Mark. He'll believe anything. I know I'm going to tell him that when Churchill was in town, we always used to clean <laughs> our step in case he would need to sit on it. Anyway, shouldn't sit on the step. It gives you piles. Why? Well, you know that the whole thing. If you sit on a radiator, it gives you piles. If you sit on a cold step, it gives you piles. If you, I didn't know. This. Cross your. It's not true. Or oh, hemorrhoids, right. or you know, you well, should never sit on a radiator or a cold step because it'll do unspeakable things to your who insides. Who told you that? Well, everyone told me that. That was a thing. Okay. It, it was. It, it, it. Did you grow up in England? And now it's time for DVD of the week. Here, Mark. Here, Simon. Here, Mark. Here, Simon. Here, Mark. Here, Simon. Amazing fact of the week. Go one on. 18-inch pizza. I'm already losing the will to live. Yeah, go on. One 18-inch pizza has more pizza than two 12-inch pizzas. Okay. It's a fact. Is, is it actually a fact? Measuring, no, it's a joke. Measuring it? the area of both pizzas. So that's pi r squared. Pi r squared. An 18-inch pizza has 254 square inches. While a 12 inch has 226. Okay. But two, two lots of. Oh, two lots of 12 has got 226. Okay. So therefore. Where is this going? Anyway, another amazing fact of the week some people seem to actually enjoy the incomprehensible and ridiculous mess that was Wet Transformers, <laughs> aka. God- Sorry, that whole pizza thing was just a lead up to that. Yeah, it sounds okay. like it, doesn't it? A.K.A. Godzilla, King of the Monsters. There's no math to explain this, as it's beyond human comprehension. It is. So let's hear what the squad think should be a keeper this week. Steve Wassling, I really do agree with everything Mark says about Godzilla, involving the plot and the human character. There was a plot. <clears throat> but I really don't agree that the monsters and the action were a Transformers-level un- unenjoyable mess. To me, this was a good time at the cinema. I only watched Angel Heart again recently, but I'm definitely going to have that. I don't know why you chipped in with that last sentence, because it didn't really follow on from the previous one. But No, but it's in the list. 
It's in the list. I know, but it didn't, you know, if there could have been a little link but it's from in the one list. to the other, it wasn't even a separate in paragraph. In the list. Separate paragraph would have helped. But in the list. Matt on Twitter. And so, Late Night makes its way into homes across the nation, inspiring a grey, lifeless, comedic spirit to all who watch. Nice to see Emma Thompson, mind. Mark would choose Angel Heart, starring Mickey Rourke, pre-Melty Face. Alec Ferris. <laughs> Never mind that the humans in King of the Monsters were pants, I thought the film failed to do the kaiju justice. Is there a greater failure in blockbuster make than robbing Godzilla of his majesty. Dan Cook, as someone who grew up watching the classic Toho Godzillas, I absolutely adore King of the Monsters and I can't wait to watch it again as quickly as possible. Stunning cinematography and some of the most breathtaking monster fights in kaiju history. Craig Menzies says, Godzilla gave me a migraine. My son wants to watch it, but I fear it could ruin the Godzilla genre for him as he is aware of a version of Godzilla where his tail gives birth. What? That's not right. It's called Shin Godzilla. It's called Sh- Shin yes. Godzilla, and the yep. baby comes out of the tail. That's that's just that's honestly. Wrong. I'm I'm getting the editorial in my ear, telling you that it's more complicated than that. But yes, Tom Vamos, uh, Angel Heart. If for no other reason than to kick myself for not having listened to key characters' names the first time I saw it. Mickey Rourke playing Harry Angel, Robert De Niro playing Louis Cipher. Well done. So on. Uh, what's our DVD of the week then? Well, mate? I'm going to go uh, for two choices. For the newer one, I'm going to go for The Chambermaid, and for the uh, the re-release, I'm definitely going to go for Angel Heart. Not least because I, I, I've been thinking about it so much recently because I got out the uh, soundtrack uh, CD, which has got little bits of dialogue on it. I love Angel Heart. I think it's a, a real, genuine, proper, brilliant masterpiece, and it was much derided at the time when it came out. But boy, has it aged well, and it is worth seeing... Not least because Mickey Rourke is so good in it. I mean, I know he'd been good in other things, but Angel Heart is... You look at Mickey Rourke and Angel Heart, and firstly you think, what happened after that? And, you know, many answers to that question, you know, up until we get back up to the sort of comeback. But also, De Niro's hardly in it, but that Louis Cipher character, I mean, that whole scene when he peels the egg and says, you know, some religions think the egg is the symbol of the soul. Would you like an egg, Mr. Angel? Have you seen it? And no. Mickey Rourke says, you know, I got thing I don't I got a thing about chickens. I got a thing about Oh great, I get to get to go gotta put some keep keep Woody Allen's in this movie. <sighs> He's not in this movie. That was me doing Mickey Rourke. I do apologize for that. I just got lost. He's a foreign gentleman, foreign, Mr. Saifier. He's a foreign foreign gentleman. Anyway, before we finish... Yeah, I do, way, you know, usually I do divorces, you know. I mean, people, they look in the phone book, Angel A, that's how they come to me, that's how it works. We're going to finish with a little bit of birdsong. You're Johnny Favourite, you've been, you know... With MC5. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> oh, good, OK, right. This is... <laughs> Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts.
Okay, so the Rugby World Cup is now finally underway in Japan. And right now on BBC Sounds, you can hear the Rugby Union Weekly Podcast with me, Chris Jones. And me, Danny Kerr. Chris will have all the latest from inside the home nation's camps, his tour of Japan, including karaoke bars and cat cafes. And I'm on the sofa with my fellow Englishman and old mate, Chris Ashton. Rugby Union Weekly, available now on BBC Sounds.